I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not a fan of web surveillance, bionic. You know, I've never heard you say I'm a fan of blah, blah, blah. I don't okay. think. Uh, okay, I'll change it. Tom, I am a fan of raw goat's milk, bionic. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Raw goat's milk. Okay. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. Uh, if you'd move your mic a little closer there. Closer? Yeah. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking to not not you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking yeah. to my cohort here. Step into not, the radio, folks. Um, Get right up against the speaker, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be with you uh, this week. We're starting a new week, a new series of shows. As you know, we normally have a, a special guest that comes on, and we'll have the first four days of the week. But we're doing something drastically different, something that you all have never experienced before. Your lives will never be the same mm-hmm. from what you're getting ready to experience. If you're driving around in your car, you've got your seatbelt on. Good. Mm-hmm. Everybody else? Hope you're setting down. Sit down. Deep breath. We're going to do a new segment on Monday. Dun, dun, dun. Boom, 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 boom. Well, I just boom, pegged the board. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we're trying something a little different here just to mix it up. Uh, we are going to... Uh, do something that's sort of in response to a lot of positive feedback we got from our listeners uh, mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. Uh, we did a first phase of a review of the written works of, of Professor Robert Luganville uh, and his his uh, uh, website of uh, Igthus website, and uh, we were talking about the Satanic Rebellion background of the Tribulation, and um, they want to hear more. Our listeners really enjoyed that discussion. Mm-hmm. And so we only got we, <laughs> we only got so far through it. So we're going to pick that up tomorrow and do that sort of a midweek, and we're going to bookend it with our new segment. So there you go. And those of you who are listening on the weekly internet show, bear with us because we'll have to re-explain this every day uh, for our our listeners on the radio who tend to tune in uh, and wonder what in the world we're doing, which is pretty normal for them yeah. to w- know, wonder what in the world we're doing. Yeah, I know. But take, uh, take a lot of stuff out of context and doing crazy stuff. That's right. But we got Hate stories. Mail. Uh, you want to start with a story? Sure. I'll start with the raw goat's milk story. This this is coming from a gentleman who, every week, he has something new that he's doing that is the thing to do. That I I always try to find out what it is and why. And the thing now you've been doing is you've been drinking goat's milk, right? Yeah. I see this white put goat's jar yeah. of stuff that you're drinking. I'm wondering what. No, it's got to be something to it. Mm-hmm. And you're drinking. Can you explain why? By the way. Um, well, uh, yes, I can, actually. Uh, after doing some research, well, this is going to take a long time, but I'll try and keep it short. Yeah. Um, uh, I was training to do my first triathlon, and I was having mm-hmm. trouble recovering. So after doing a bunch of research, I found that uh, the problem was not necessarily my body, but what I was ingesting. Hmm. And so I did some more research, and I found that essentially what's going on is when you eat and drink certain things with lots of chemicals in them, what happens is your body reacts against them, similar to like having, mm-hmm. you know, like a virus or a bacteria yeah. or something. And yeah. if you're doing that consistently to your gut, uh, your body has no, uh, you know, has trouble doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went on a, I, after doing a little bit of research, I found the uh, uh, a diet by a gentleman uh, by the name of Asa Andrews mm-hmm. um, and did that for three months. <clears throat> Excuse me. And part of that is that you cannot drink 
cow's milk. And I like to have a glass of milk every now and then, so yeah. Um, I was but getting goat's milk is okay. Goat's milk, yep. Huh. Okay. So that's why I was doing it. Wow. Well, you see, I thought where you were going with that story was when you said it wasn't your body, it was the chemicals, mm-hmm. that you were going to start taking large amounts of anabolic steroids. To bulk which, up. Which would offset whatever your body was doing. <coughs> it would automatically get you ready for it anyway. Mm-hmm. That, that would have been the approach I would have chosen. Well, I, I know. After eating those hot dogs and stuff, I, I could see that you have no fear of chemicals. It's on my diet. It's on my diet. <laughs> I'm losing no weight. I'm getting down to my svelte stage yeah. now. Sorry, I didn't mean to take you from okay. your story, but I thought goat's milk, I'm assuming that's what caught your eye with goat's milk, was that you yeah. had goat's milk on your mind. Mm-hmm. Well, j- that and just the sort of overall insanity of this story. With no warning, this is from the L.A. Times, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, with no warning, one weekday morning, investigators entered in an organic grocery with a search warrant and ordered the hemp-clad workers to put down their buckets of mashed coconut cream and to step away from the nuts. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> then... This is why we pay police and people so much money. Yeah, is yeah. Then, situation. guns drawn. Four officers fanned out across the Rossum Foods in Venice. Uh, that's, you know, obviously Venice, Los Angeles area. Uh, skirting past the arugula and peering into crates of zucchini, they found the raid's target inside a walk-in refrigerator. Dun-dun-dun! Unmarked jugs of raw milk. Aha! I still can't believe they took th- took our yogurt, said Rossum volunteer C.J. Jones, uh, a few days after the raid. Yeah. Uh, there's a medical marijuana shop a couple of miles away, and they're raiding us because we're selling, selling raw dairy products? Uh, cartons of raw goat and cow milk and blocks of unpasteurized goat cheese were among the groceries seized in the June 30th raid by federal, state, and local authorities, the latest salvo in the heated food fight over what people can put in their mouths. Very short, but I mm. just, uh, I, the, the insanity. Expect more of that, though. Oh, expect more of it. There's there's an, like an undeclared war on mm-hmm. uh, raw milk and raw produce producers going on right now in the Ohio area. Well, they're using they're using like undercover agents to go and grab people who sell lots of tomatoes. You know, they like, when I lived in Ohio, there was only one dairy I knew of that could could sell unpasteurized milk, and that was a place called Young's Dairy. Uh-huh. And it was really close to Cedarville uh, University. Mm-hmm. Christian, very very uh, um, fundamentalist uh, university at the time. Mm-hmm. And then it was just a couple miles down the road from the most incredibly liberal university, Antioch University. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Timothy Leary went there and people mm-hmm. like that. And they're only a few miles separated, and Young's Dairy was in the middle, and that's where they sort of met. But that was it. Was the most incredible milk. People said it just really helped them. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if they're part of this thing. It could be. I don't know. Well, it's just the whole the whole thing about like uh, somebody has to tell me what I can and cannot eat mm-hmm. really perturbs me. Mm-hmm. You know, especially after doing uh, as we've talked earlier mm-hmm. earlier today about just doing some research on how close the chemicals are between things. It's yeah. just crazy. Bill-approved pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. that cost, that you know, they're lying in the pockets of the politicians. Yeah. They will approve that mm-hmm. when they have no idea what to do to the body. But there's sure. natural stuff. Well, they got to regulate that natural go, stuff. Go and go and read any statistical study uh, done on, on some new drug they're putting out. Yeah. All it has to do is beat is beat placebo. And they're like, new drug. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Woohoo! What does it do? We don't care. Right. Right. 
Well, can I share one with you here? Please. This is somebody who uh, probably is in our top five list of people mentioned on Future Quake. Rockefeller? Richard Land. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Now, I don't think I mentioned this on... Um, on our show last week, and if mm-hmm. I did, Futurians, please forgive me for this. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did. I think I talked to you right after the show was over. But uh, this is from Richard Land, who was a spokesman for the Southern Baptist Convention from their Ethics and Religious Liberty group. He's their most vocal person, uh, talk show host, out of Nashville here. Uh, immigration reform, an opportunity to evangelize Hispanics. However, Oriental or Islamic immigrants not welcome. Uh, for months we've been covering the fact, and by the way, this story is from a website called Right Wing Watch, mm-hmm. and I always feel bad taking stories from them because I know they probably have uh, contempt for Bible-believing Christians in general. Mm-hmm. But the sad story is they're going out and getting the information that the Christian media will not talk about. Yeah, this mum is the word on these stories. So, and it's not just us. You know, Sarah uh, Leslie that does the uh, yeah, she's discernment. Been, she's been claimed by quite a few prominent. She well, she actually says, you know, these people aren't Christians, but at least they're doing investigative work on. Mm-hmm. So this is what we've been reduced to. Christian media will not be self-policing. They, they won't cover stories, just like our discussion with Joseph Farah that we mm-hmm. just had. Mm-hmm. They won't touch certain topics. So we have to go to the godless people to get information. Great. Now, if this information is not factual, let us know, Futurians, yeah. and we'll refute it. But uh, yeah, so we'll far, do, I mean, if, this a, is, if that's wrong, let's do a retraction. This has been a reliable source. Now, they may make some snide comments or commentary. You have mm-hmm. to do it. But you can almost sympathize with what they say when you read some of the things that are coming out. Um says, for months we've been covering the fact that a handful of religious right leaders, including Matt Staver and Richard Land, are supporting immigration reform that offers a path to citizenship for immigrants already in the country, and pointing uh, that for all of their talk about compassion and biblical obligations and whatnot, what they really care about is swelling the ranks of their movement. And nobody has been more open about this than Richard Land who freely admits that he supports immigration reform because most of the immigrants are Hispanic, and Hispanics are, quote, tailor-made to be social conservatives. Uh, If the majority of immigrants weren't right for aggressive evangelism, he'd have a much harder time supporting reform. Evangelical groups in recent weeks have some key players in the Obama administration's efforts to get uh, immigration reform moving in Congress, and while they have largely couched their arguments in moral terms or with reference to biblical teachings, top leaders acknowledge another important reason. Latino immigrants, legal and illegal, represent fertile prospects for proselytizing. Uh, they say first, and this is from Richard Land, first and foremost, it's a kingdom issue, and second, it's a moral issue. Richard Land says president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't know he, mm, I thought he got was, that position, but he former president quoted uh, told Politico. Yeah. We have they may have had a convention meeting and I missed, but mm-hmm. we have hundreds of thousands of Hispanic Southern Baptists and many of them are undocumented. It's now you remember when the conservatives were blaming the Catholics because the Catholics were taking the Hispanics because they're largely Catholic mm-hmm. Hispanic and they were keeping them in like little uh, sanctuaries in their churches when they were undocumented like mm-hmm. there was a woman and a child they wouldn't let the government get to and there was all sorts of criticism about that now, I'm not saying it was right or wrong I'm just saying they criticized it now they're changing their tune because they think they can make hay political hay mm-hmm. it says it's no secret we practice aggressive evangelism many of these people were converted after they got here now 
That's okay. To me, I mean, evangelizing people is great. Sure. Of course, you can do that in Mexico. You can go down to Mexico and evangelize. You can even go that to somewhere like Israel. You don't have to. Well, no, you can't do it uh, there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but you don't have to make somebody break the law to be able to share the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying, well, hey, why not? Uh, it says, some evangelicals have stirred the pot further by drawing a contrast. This This is where it gets even worse. Between predominantly Christian immigrants to the U.S. and a largely Muslim migration to Western Europe. Okay, here's another of his quotes. Realistically, I think it is probably more politically feasible to do this because the overwhelming majority of the people that we're talking about come from a European civilization, said Land. It would be more problematic if we had 12 million or 14 million undocumented people and they were either Oriental or Islamic. Oh, so it's it's it has more to do with skin color and and different mm-hmm. values and stuff. Right. Whether that right. is right or wrong, I'm just giving you a realistic political calculation. Hmm. So you have a major evangelical leader, okay, called by God, being paid for by the church, okay, mm-hmm. being paid for by church people to help provide leadership in our mission for Christ. His main concern is not whether something is right or wrong, but the realistic political calculations. Mm-hmm. Which is that why we pick our religious leader? I hope for that? not. But I, I mean, our practical sense is, uh, I think that is true. I think that I think that sadly is true. In yeah. some cases, it is so. Things are so topsy turvy that the the leader gets picked because of his political acumen. Well, it, it seems like there's no accountability sure. to, to the other. And, and and then I mean that's one issue. And then the fact that it's not that these are people that are lost and need to be saved. Even if you're even if you're encouraging illegal behavior mm-hmm. to make it easier on you to reach them. Uh, but they're saying, well, we, we just want the right kind of people. Mm-hmm. If somebody's a Muslim or Oriental, I don't know why. They don't want Oriental people here? Yeah. You know? You know skin has to be a certain color. Don't they remember that not song, really Jesus dark. Loves the Little you know, Children of the World? Apparently not. You know, Red and yellow, black and white, this, they are precious in his sight. Apparent this, you know, except if they're Chinese or Muslims. Yeah, I don't remember that part of when I learned it at school. That was the second verse. I just it just dumbfounds me. Uh, a t- leader of evangelicals. I'll, I'll tell you this: uh, nothing surprises me anymore. But I was at a I was at a play where they were trying to. And I'm sorry to interrupt the story, but I was at this play one time. Uh, the whole idea being that they were going to try and evangelize the youth in the area mm-hmm. by bringing the reality of life and death like into clear focus, and uh, I sat behind, I sat on near the front row and behind this guy who was talking about how we needed to go, uh, go kill all Muslims everywhere, that they were a cancer and uh, took took the typical American evangelical position. In other words, uh, it, he was a little bit more strident. Um, and I don't know that if that's the typical, but it certainly seems like the majority. That's the majority. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out, at the end of the thing, they had everybody stand up and go back to receive Bibles and pray with somebody and all that. He was one of the guys who was escorting all of those people back there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, how how telling that by your actions you've just told me, mm-hmm. uh, by a combination of your words and actions you've just told me that salvation only belongs to your group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, just kill the rest of them. Yeah, you know, go get them. But you, you know, I mean, this this whole addendum he puts on this, and this I've seen this reported in, in numerous things. It's real. Mm-hmm. Um, totally belies his argument that well, it's a kingdom issue. 
It's really about evangelizing. Sure. Yeah, really. If it was really about evangelizing, you'd want people. In fact, you'd really want Muslims, and you'd want people from different mm-hmm. cultures here to help us fulfill the Great Commission. Based on the based on the people that I know that regularly evangelize Muslims, they say it's practically low hanging fruit. I'll tell you another story. I had a, have a friend of mine here in town who works at a. Uh, and I hate to keep tying, the, tying this all up, but this is a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine who, was, uh, who works at a, at a free clinic here, and uh, a person there decided they were going to pray that God would send them somebody that they really needed to hear what they had to say. And so this lady showed up and said, I need to speak with the person who looks like this, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so what, happens, what, what happened was it was none of the doctors, none of the nurses. It was this other guy who was uh, not part of the staff there, you know. And so they were like, well, okay. So they went there, and he spoke with a lady for a half hour. She was a Muslim, and she was converted. So she goes home and, you know, tells her husband, and he gets a phone call a few days later. So he goes over there, and Mm -hmm. he says, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Muslim. I believe everything the Quran says, but my wife doesn't speak English, and she was able to understand you perfectly. So... I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. Really? Really? True. As far as I know, that is yeah. a true story. Well, you know, I know a few missionaries who are who are dealing with the Muslim in, over in, in their countries. Mm-hmm. And, and all I can tell you is their testimony is radically different in the field than sure. what our evangelical leaders in America are telling us. Mm-hmm. They're saying these people have a lot of questions about America and what America is doing. But when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about other things, they want to hear. Mm-hmm. They want to know. And they ask about the Bible and about Jesus and what it is. And converts are coming. Mm-hmm. And, and their response is dramatically different than what we're hearing told sure. to us by our American leaders here. Well, one of the stories we covered was Ergen uh, 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 Kaner talking mm-hmm. about how he was, yeah. you know, Sort of, which I've heard. I haven't heard a thing about that study. Yeah, I know. It turned uh, well. Nobody's bothered to refute it or anything. So, I mean, I they were going to do a study at Liberty. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm not bumped into any information. Well, perhaps it's that. perhaps it's ongoing, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's based on based on the evidence that was presented. It was very it was yeah. very difficult to yeah. refute unless you know Ohio records were were right. You know, manufactured mm-hmm. things like that. So, well. This leads me, you know, when I made that comment in last week's show, mm-hmm. that I can't help but wonder if the fact that we can very clearly see that a lot of these evangelical leaders, their message, when you start peeling away the onion, is really a political, political message. It's not a, not a scripture evangelical. Mm-hmm. They'll go try to cover it in that, a veneer of it. But that's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It, and it's identical to the message that we see our intelligence services Sure. Have promoted through every other institution. People who've been caught red-handed, you know, and they said, yep, I was an FBI agent or CIA or whatever mm-hmm. like that. The exact same message that they want. you got to wonder if some of these people got to have those connections. You know, I'm not naming an individual name here. Maybe one day, you know what, I would love for WikiLeaks to get some whistleblowers in some of these ministries. To, because you, you know that the major Christian ministries would not expose any of this. No, they would sweep it under the rug. Unless they were a rival for money. Unless keep they it were in their own house. Rivaling for that. Mm-hmm. But if WikiLeaks or somebody, an honest broker, would actually expose some of that information, so then we could we could expose it, grieve over it, you know, ask repentance yeah. to God and to to our nation, 
and move on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like you and I have talked about, the Lord says in the last days that there'll be tares amongst the wheat mm-hmm. and great deception. Um, and I will let our Futurian listeners make a decision on who they think may fit the bill, if anybody, in that. Mm-hmm. But be very, very careful of the people who you get your worldview from. Sure. Be very careful and check it out, double-check it. And it's not a new problem. I mean, it, it, it's, it's taken new dimensions with mass media, but even mm-hmm. in the New Testament books, there were constantly traveling teachers who were spreading all sorts of lies and other kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. Paul was going to have to expose them and Peter and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you need to expect that to, sure. to be normal. Well, and, and Paul even wrote that he withstood Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. Mm-hmm. Stop and think about that for a second. Yeah. Here's a guy that here's a guy that, you know, walked around with Jesus who appeared to be caught up in the same sort of thing that mm-hmm. we're seeing now and Paul was the only guy to be able to say you are wrong. Which you is sort of are weird wrong. when you hear teaching about Peter being the first pope and the rock the church is built on. Yep. When you think that Paul actually chastised him. Mhm. You know. And and evidently, I I presume that that chastisement was accepted eventually by Peter. Sure, I, I would. I mean, his his writing seemed to suggest that he yeah certainly. acknowledged eventually. Yeah, certainly that that point. So, so. I'm sorry. I know I get on that beef a lot. But. No, it's okay. I'm sure we'll get a lot of emails. I got some more it. stories about that too. You something else you want to read, or I can I can save the other ones till Friday. Let but. me do another. Let me do another quick one. By the way, one of the reasons why I read those kind of stories mm-hmm. is that uh, judgment begins in the house of the lord mm-hmm. so yeah. you you gotta you gotta look internally to see if we're going to see better mm-hmm. things externally okay uh hr 57 this is this is another very quick story hr 5741 two-year conscription for americans between ages 18 and 42 for national service hmm. uh, hr 574 ih 111th congress second session or 2D session, I think. Yeah, when, when's the dates on this you're talking about? Oh, I just got it off of, I just got it via government track just recently. Okay. Uh, so this is new legislation? Yeah. Because there's been lots of talk. In fact, the, the, the fellow, the congressman who just got caught, basically getting thrown out of Congress, what's mm-hmm. his name? Older I lose man. Track. Anyway, he was the one who originally brought this up. So. Okay. To require all persons, this is, this is just the abstract, which is all I bothered mm-hmm. to print out. Charlie Rangel. Yeah, maybe it is That's Charlie. It was, yeah. Yeah. To require all persons in the United States between the ages of 18 and 42 to perform national service as either as a member of the uniformed service or in civilian service in furtherance of the national defense and homeland security. To authorize the induction of persons in the uniformed services during wartime to meet end strength requirements of the uniformed services and for other purposes. Um, Killing fellow civilians, locking up neighbors. Yep. Hurting on camps. Yep. That'd be the other services. Yep. Uh, and now they're going to require you to go to go to the military. Now, what's the status of this? This has been put on the floor. Yeah, this was just this was just uh, introduced as as uh, something to be voted on at some point. Okay. It has to go through its whole rigmarole and everything. And I haven't. I I must admit I've been remiss on checking on the fine points. But eighteen to forty-two. Yeah, eighteen to forty-two. Okay. Sounds like indoctrination. I mean, well, if I didn't know better. You know, that's not my problem. I'm not in that window, so it's it's my other my other uh, fellow citizens' problem. I'm just going to sit yep. back and relax. Now, Mrs. Future may have something else to say about that. I was going to say, that. yeah, your better half. And and Tom Bionic. It Tom, might be a little lonely, but just said bring Mervin, Mervin Pyro. Yeah. 
We'll be the rest Murph, of the show come on here. in for the 57th time. Yeah, you'll be come in the salt in. mines over there. I'll, I'll be in jail, I'm I sure. bet you they'd probably put you, like, as a guard at Guantanamo Bay, probably having a waterboard or stack those people up in pyramids. Oh, That'd probably be your job. I doubt it. Putting the sack over people's I'm heads. Sure they have, I'm sure they have... A, there's, I'm sure in a file drawer somewhere there's a file on me, you know. You know why they'd like you in the military? Is because it? you're compliant... You're, you don't think for yourself. You don't have your own opinion. Yeah. You just do what you're told without questioning. Yeah. And I'm sure that's why they'd like to have you. I'm sure. The drill sergeant would be like, I've never met anybody that weird. Can you imagine how many push-ups you'd have to do? Oh, I would either look like, I would either suffer a hernia or like a chest hernia <laughs> or be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Can, can I read a real quick one here? Go ahead. Oh, I, let me see. This is a real quickie since we're about out of time here. Um. Oh, this is sort of funny. You, you remember our friend Newt Gingrich, who was... Well, uh, he's not my friend, but I mean... He's I your know. friend. Um, <laughs> he was anointed by um, the, the Dominionist guy. The evangelical people. Oh, Lou Engel anointed oh, yeah, him, right. you oh. know, so he can run for... I hear people that say that he is really, really into New Age, although I've not had enough time to do research on him to find yeah. out what all he's into, but wouldn't shock me. But uh, he's had somebody else come out endorsing him. Now, this, this is the guy that this part of the church, you know, the Dominion's church endorsed. Mm-hmm. It says, um, former House Speaker, Prodigal Conservative Newt Gingrich, got an endorsement from an unexpected source Sunday. This is on CNN. Uh, former House Speaker uh, won't yet say if he's running for president in 2012, but he picked up an unlikely endorsement Sunday. Gingrich, a leading conservative Republican, has, quote, a ton of ideas to move the country forward said former Vermont Governor Howard Dean, a past chairman of the Democratic National Committee on Fox News Sunday. That's a weird one. There are no ideas in the Republican Party right now in the Congress, Dean said. They're the party of no. Uh, They desperately need some intellectual leadership, and whatever you think of Newt Gingrich, he can supply intellectual leadership. So I hope he does run. So, I mean, I'm assuming Dean's going to be working hard for whoever he, his challenger would be if he ran. Gingrich, who also appeared on the show, joked that Dean's backing could doom his candidacy if he ran. Isn't that weird? Roar! That's the yeah. Howard Dean yeah. thing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in, in closing, uh, talking about the candidates, we've got a little ways for that. But, yeah. you know, most Christians I know are pretty excited about Mike Huckabee, you know, about him running. Dr. Future for President. Uh, but I would suggest go on the YouTube and look up the Republican debates... Um, that were held, and I'm trying to remember when actually occurred. It was at the same time that Iran had those boats attacking, mm-hmm. and you can hear about the uh, the Baptist preacher uh, Gingrich saying how he looked forward to leading Huckabee. those Iranian Huckabee yeah. uh, leading those uh, Iranians to hell, to the gates of hell. Yep. It's uh. It sounds like Baptist preacher talk to me. Yeah. There's there's a lot of there's that's something we need to look into a little bit a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody else we need to look into is Merv, who could tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we have to go. 
I'll bet you we'll get a lot of hate emails about this show. You mean competing against the other eight emails and the other things? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to put them all on a stack. Well, I have a discouraging word for those people. Okay. The overwhelming majority of the emails we get are overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, I would say that for it's what very we positive, say. right? So even if you do have discriminant email anyway, and many times once we've had a clear-out talk on email, we've come to terms together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate everybody's thoughts on things. It's a difficult world we live in. Uh, until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, interested in ichthus.com, Bionic. Hmm. And I'm sure that middle name has nothing to do with our gastro topic today. Completely does it? random this week. Completely random. Yes, completely random. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, you've already su- su- uh, surmised if you listened to yesterday's show. We're doing things a little different this week. Um, we took Monday and, fr- and Friday coming up to do news in the middle three days of this week. Mm-hmm. We are going back and picking up part two of our review of a work that has been very popular so far based upon emails we've received. Uh, we are going to review uh, a work of a Professor Robert Luganbill. Uh, if you want to uh, Google search him, it's L-U-G-I-N-B-I-L-L mm-hmm. uh, at the igthus.com website. Uh, igthus is I-C-H-T-H-Y-S dot com. Uh, we'll have those links at uh, the archives of futurequake.com. We did a, a part one or a part of part one mm-hmm. in an earlier show about two months ago regarding to his research called the Satanic Rebellion, Background of the Tribulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we began in part one, which was Satan's Rebellion and Fall. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, uh, Dr. Luganbill was really not in a position to be able to come on air. Mm-hmm. But we thought the information was so good that you and I simply read the material and discussed it on mm-hmm. air. And uh, didn't know what the what our audience would think, but it seemed like it was really popular. Mm-hmm. And they said we want to hear more, so that's what we're doing this week. We're going to give more. So Roll tape. We're going to proceed uh, again. He's uh, uh, he has another work on his website talking about the coming tribulation, and the precursor of that is this um, groundwork theology, the Satanic Rebellion, and. Um, it says the Satanic Rebellion explores the origins and course of Satan's initial rebellion against God. Uh, and it goes on into his judgment of the universe and planet Earth and on and on. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very, very detailed analysis. Uh, so we'll just make another den into it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always recommend people go online to read the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a lot of Bible references, which is good in this, a mm-hmm. lot of the references. And we're not going to just read this long list of them. Go online if you mm-hmm. want to know what they are. Okay, so let me pick up uh, his narrative where we left off, talking about the realm of angels. And, uh, Mr. Bionic, I expect you to chime in whenever you take the urge, okay? Ding! Yeah, not that kind of chime. Okay, the realm of angels is often assumed to be the heavens, and to a certain degree this is true. At least at this present time, A, they are often called heavenly host. Uh, B, angels are invariably present on the heavenly scene. And C, angels are often identified with the stars of heaven. Uh, and he gives copious references for that. Mm-hmm. Since elsewhere in scripture, stars are literally stars, it is likely that this designation is a reference to angelic spheres of authority. Fallen angels, for example, are termed, quote, wandering stars in Jude 13. Mm. 
uh, in a comparison to false teachers where the reference to, quote, blackest darkness reserved forever recalls the lake of fire and supernatural darkness prepared for the devil and his angels. Ding! Um, this this goes along with exactly my thinking. Well, you use that ding all along. I really like that, to? even in our new segment. You want yeah. me to? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this goes along with my thinking. I've often thought, you know, they, they, there's different ways that people sort of parse the heavenly realm and this whole thing. Uh, it seems to, in practical sense, for us to understand it, and I haven't, I haven't sat down and actually tried to make the theological connection, but uh, what's often meant in that context is really more what we might call the spirit world in today's Western vernacular, and not necessarily uh, like just what we think of as heaven. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know for sure people always have it clearly worked out in their head. I don't, I, and I and I probably don't either. It's probably just, a picture they saw in Sunday school or on TV. And mm-hmm. That's what they. It just well, just it. based on the stuff that he said, I, it tends to mean, you know, I see. Yeah. Anyway, well, he'll comment further on this here. Okay. This term is reminiscent of their failure to quote keep their own domain, i.e., choosing to interfere with human affairs in Satan's behalf, and they abandon their ordained heavenly realms. Discussed in Jude six, mm-hmm. the three heavens. What, is exa- what exactly is meant, then, by heaven? Hmm. When we speak of the heavens in biblical terms, we are referring to the threefold division of the cosmos beyond the earth. A, the earth's atmosphere, or the sky. B, the universe at large, space. And C, the third heaven, the abode of God, or simply heaven, as is customarily termed. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew word for heavens is shemayim. It's a word you'll often see with Blue Letter Bible, you'll see that. A noun whose form is significantly dual in number. Two of something as opposed to a single unit, or multiple units beyond a pair. The dual of the Hebrew word, Shemayim, perfectly reflects the reality of the two distinct distinct parts of the heavens, sky and space, in one continuum. We may refer to these as the first heaven, the atmosphere, and the second heaven, the universe beyond earth, respectively. Mm-hmm. However, in verse 14, the rakia, or firmament, is now the place of the sun, moon, and stars. Significantly, the exact terminology used in verse 14 is uh, rakia hashimim. And I'm sure I pronounced that exactly right. You spot Very on. confident I am. Heiser's standing up and applying. <laughs> yeah, he learned something from that. Yeah. Uh, or the firmament of the heavens. The difference is a substantial one before, because it suggests that these Shemayim, or old heavens, are in some sense distinct from those referred to earlier. From our earlier perspective, as we look up at the night sky today, and how much more so in 1400 B.C., the heavens that surround us, i.e. the atmosphere, and the heavens above, space, or the universe, appear as one continuum. The dual of the Hebrew word Shemayim perfectly reflects this reality of two distinct elements, sky and space, in one continuum. These are the first heaven, the atmosphere, and the second heaven, the universe beyond earth, respectively and collectively. The third heaven, on the other hand, is the abode of God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, the Apostle Paul describes a man, quote, snatched up to this third heaven. In verse 4, the location is also referred to as paradise, a word which in biblical terms suggests the presence of and fellowship with God. This third heaven is also referred to in the Old Testament as uh, Shemi Shemayim, the heaven of the heavens, mm-hmm. uh, the, a Hebrew idiom for highest heavens. 
Thus, in the Bible, all three parts or levels of the heavens, the sky, the universe, and the abode of God, can be and are often called heaven, individually and collectively, without the various authors of Scripture feeling any need to distinguish the three, as this concept of the threefold division uh, uh, of the uh, Shemayim was apparently well understood in biblical times. Angels are capable of entering all three sections of the heavens, but a word must be said at this point about their reasons for doing so. Hmm. This should be interesting. The operational sphere of angels. For a variety of reasons, for example, their occasional association with stars and their apparently hierarchical organization, we conjecture that angels have spheres of authority and certain duties in the second heaven, the universe at large, although the scriptures do not provide an exhaustive account of these. We know more about their journeys to the first heaven and their uh, ministrations on God's behalf to mankind, Mm -hmm. in the case of the elect angels, or their attempts to carry out Satan's design against mankind, as in the case of the fallen angels. Um, That's interesting you mentioned that, because I did a study on, uh, what is it, seraphim one time? Yeah. And it sort of appears that they always show up as the, the imperial guard. Like, that is their primary job skill. If I had to sort of you know, put a description on it. They're always guarding this or guarding that, standing around the throne. Now, I, I've seen them guard God's throne. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you've seen them guard? Uh, I believe, didn't they guard, didn't they guard Eden, the way to Eden, once, once they kicked uh, a flaming sword and a I was thinking that was a cherubim, but I'll have to go check. I have to look that. Yeah. I, I'm, I could Don't be remember mistaken. that off my head. Um, I just read that passage. Yeah, there's there's four or five places they show up, and huh. one or two references where you can say, well, maybe. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know Hebrew very well, which I'm taking steps to rectify. Okay. Uh, but um, I'll know more later. Okay. But anyway, that was a, that was something I looked at a while ago, and it just seemed like they. Thank goodness you're with us every week, because yeah. then as you learn, you can yeah. let us know. Yeah. All that stuff I said last week, no good. <laughs> this week, I've got it. Okay. Great. These ministries and satanic operations will be tr- treated more fully in part four of this series, but uh, suffice it to say at this point that angels are actively conducting operations here on earth, although it is not at present their primary sphere. Jacob's vision of the famous ladder, which revealed multitudes of angels ascending to heaven and descending to earth, illustrates clearly that even uh, that the elect angels do not remain on earth at all times, but rather return to heaven at certain intervals. Even Satan, described in Ephesians 2.2 as the prince of the power of the air, that is, the ruler whose realm of authority is the atmosphere, uh, referring to the first heaven and thus stressing his temporary limited authority over the earth, does not remain here at all times, but on specified occasions assembles with other angels in the presence of God in the third heaven. As we know in Job, in the beginning, things like that. Angelic assembly before and worship with God in the third heaven is important and revealing, it should not be surprising that, in addition to their actions here on earth and the universe at large, the angels are frequently to be found in the presence of the Lord, for they are his angels, and logically, therefore, symbol where he is, uh, and worship, serve, and attend him. The angels, the elect ones at any rate, have always and will always follow this pattern, even with the return of the Trinity to earth at the end of human history. Therefore, what determines the place of angelic assembly is not the particular level of heaven, but rather the presence of God. Hmm. Very interesting thought. That's an interesting thought, yeah. yeah. Uh, And just as the elect angels always assemble in his presence, 
So when this present short and temporary era we call human history is concluded, believing humanity will likewise assemble in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. After all, the Greek word ecclesia, in which we translate church, means assembly. This mm-hmm. place of assembly will ultimately... Call that ones, I think, specifically. Right, call that ones. Uh, this place of assembly will ultimately be the new earth, and specifically the new Jerusalem. What is most important to our current study is that the original place of angelic assembly was likewise not in heaven, but rather on the pristine original earth. Mm. Now, that's a provocative um, hypothesis he makes mm-hmm. that I'm not used to having other people hear. Yeah. Are you? I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he, he we talked a little bit about it and around it in the last show. Mm-hmm. But that's one of his major unique things is that he believes that Earth had a very critical role of God's presence and angels' presence mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how he defends that thought and that idea mm-hmm. um, in this. Okay. You're, you're not talking about his gap theory stuff. But, no, no, so, no, no, yeah. no, no. There's something completely different. Okay. Okay, and we're going to get a little into this here. Okay, it says, Eden, the original home of angels and the ultimate home of elect mankind. Eden is most commonly associated with the garden in which God placed Adam and Eve. And while Adam and Eve's Eden was certainly one Eden, it was neither the first nor the last paradise. Mm, I don't know about that. He's going to have to defend that well, one. Well, this is good. obvious from passages such as Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen, Luke sixteen nineteen through thirty-one, Ezekiel twenty-three forty-three, Second Corinthians twelve four, Revelations two seven and twenty-two two. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to look those up. So those are his verses. Maybe we even comment them on the next show. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at those. Um, as far as meaning is concerned, par- entomology. I'll talk about. As far as meaning is concerned, paradise and Eden are functionally almost synonymous. Respectively, Eden is the Old Testament and paradise, the New Testament term, for the place of the pleasurable presence of God. Eden, the Hebrew word, Eden, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, means pleasure or delight. In a similar way, paradise, the Greek word paradisos, a Persian word first used in Greek by historian Xenophon, originally meant the king's private preserve, a unique and delightful place. Isn't that interesting? They have commonality. Yeah. Thus, it was quite a natural thing to substitute the term paradise as a Greek equivalent to the Hebrew phrase, the Garden of Eden delight. What, then, is so pleasurable about Eden paradise? Nothing less than the presence of God in whom is all joy and delight, as referenced in Psalm 21, 6, 27, 4 through 6, and 84, 10. Now, the illustration of the tabernacle. Here's another rationale for this. The construction of Israel's tabernacle helps to explain and illustrate this relationship between Eden, paradise, and God's manifest presence. It will be recalled that the layout and furniture of the tabernacle are patterns or types, quote, a copy and shadow of things in the heaven. It's in Hebrew 8.5. Time does not permit a thorough discussion of all the symbolism and detail of the law here, but a brief discussion will be useful for the tabernacle itself is a picture of the present Eden, that is, the third heaven where God is currently in manifest residence. Hmm. That's what he calls the third Eden now. And he, I'm, I'm going to have to look all that stuff up before saying anything about well, I'm not, it. I'm not saying we agree we don't, we don't or not agree. We don't disagree, but that no. one is like, but I didn't see that one coming. He's laying out, he's laying out his uh, rationale for this in verses. And we, yeah. Maybe in the next show we can comment on some of those verses he yep. mentioned earlier about it. Um. But it's fascinating to read. Uh, mm-hmm. 
on his uh, hypotheses here, okay? And he has a picture. Uh, if you go to the Ichthus.com website, you can look at this picture of the tabernacle, and that may be useful for some of our listeners, particularly if you're getting this from our website or a podcast, mm-hmm. and you can look at the picture at his website alongside of our discussion. Okay. Um, entrance into the tabernacle is not permissible without first passing the altar, where the blood sacrifices depict the uh, saving work of Christ on our behalf in various ways. Uh, certain cases where there's an actual placing uh, of the hand on the victim's head. And the laver, uh, where the symbolic washing away of sin on the basis of the sacrificial work of Christ is clear enough related to baptism. The only way to get into the tabernacle heaven is through the blood of Christ and the appropriate cleansing, forgiveness on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Well, I agree with him there. Which makes it interesting when, you know, Jesus said you have to be born of, of water and the blood. Mm-hmm. So, there, there's there's water and the blood both happening there in the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. It's my comment. Um, the rituals ordained for the high priest on the Day of Atonement give an especially vivid picture of the rest- restoration of a way into the presence of God into the Eden delight of his company. He is behind the veil that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies, a place entered only once a year by the high priest in a picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne room of the Father. The blood of the sacrifice represents Christ's work, while the mercy seats with its two golden cherubs represents the Father's throne. Described in First Chronicles 28.18 as a chariot, the form of the throne of the Lord as we know it from Ezekiel 1 and his acceptance of Christ's work. It is also significant to note that the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies, replete with embroidered cherubim, the protectors of the holiness of God from anything profane, was split from top to bottom immediately after the death of our Lord, uh, opened the way for us back into the fellowship of the Father. Therefore, brothers, uh, and this is a quotation here, since we have confidence in this entrance of ours into the heavenly holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, uh, an entryway through the heavenly veil of separation, which is new and alive and which he has consecrated for us, that is, through the sacrifice of his flesh. And since we have this great high priest over the household of God, let us approach the throne of grace uh, to pray with a truthful heart and complete faith, our hearts sprinkled clean of any bad conscience, and our bodies washed with the pure water of the word. Hmm. And again, it re- refers to Ephesians 5:26, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 4. In the passage above, the writer of Hebrews makes clear the analogy between the tabernacle and the throne room of heaven. The earthly holy of holies, where the mercy seat resides atop the Ark of the Covenant, is an unambiguous type of the Father's throne, and therefore a symbol of the uh, presence of the Father. Until the, the efficacious sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his Son, there was no admittance for sinful man into his holy presence, but now all who accept Jesus Christ do have that access on the basis of the work of the one who split the veil, sacrificing his own body in our behalf. Before the sacrificial death, resurrection, ascension, and uh, uh, ascension of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, those who died in the Lord were conveyed not to heaven, but to Abraham's bosom, the pleasurable part of Sheol located beneath the earth. By his victory on the cross, however, Christ won a literal access into the Father's presence so that paradise is now to be found in the third heaven. Uh, That's a quote here from 2 Corinthians. He says, I know a man in Christ, 14 years earlier, such a one was snatched up to the third heaven. 
uh, up in his body perhaps or out of it, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, in his body perhaps or out of it, I don't know, God knows, was snatched up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not permissible for man to speak. Of course, that was Paul hmm. making that. The tabernacle, then, is a picture of the third heaven with the ark and its mercy seat representing the throne of the Father in the Holy of Holies, uh, as it is in Revelation 5, and with the veil and its embroidered cherubim representing the separation between, God's ma- between God and mankind, which is written too. The holy place, the larger of the two rooms in the tabernacle, is also representative of the fellowship between God and sanctified believers in paradise. Like a new Garden of Eden, their believers who have passed over to be with the Lord enjoy the inexpressible pleasure of fellowship with the Trinity, an event foreshadowed by three articles contained in the holy place. After accepting Christ's sacrifice on the altar on our behalf, and after being cleansed from our sins at the labor through his work, we enter the holy place containing the golden table, the golden lampstand, and the golden altar of incense, gold being a symbol of divinity. In one sense, these three articles are reminiscent of the blessed provisions of the tree of life enjoyed by Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. The shape of the golden lampstand recalls the appearance of the tree of life. The bread of the presence of the golden table recalls its fruit. Wow. There are the twelve laws of uh, Leviticus 24.5 and the twelve crops of Revelation 22. That's really fascinating. And the analogies of manna and communion. And the incense... Uh, of the golden altar recalls its fragrance. But it is in their depiction of Jesus Christ, the true tree of life, that these three articles have their most profound significance. In heaven, we are destined to enjoy the benefits of the tree of life because of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on a tree to give us access to the eternal tree of life, uh, the eternal life that the tree of life represents. Now, the bread... The bread of presence on the golden table is a picture of Christ, the bread of life, uh, being offered to the Father. He says, I am the bread of life. The light, the light emanating from the golden lampstand is a picture of Christ, the light of the world, uh, being empowered by the Holy Spirit and the anointing oil of the Spirit. Mm. The aroma, the, the incense arising from the golden altar directly before the veil of the Holy of Holies is a picture of Christ in resurrection ascending to heaven. It says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, having provided through his sacrifice a fragrant aroma of salvation most acceptable to the Father. That's fascinating. So that aroma connection to, to his, his resurrection is there in Ephesians 5 too. Hmm. Which is also interesting when you think about the incense of the prayers of the saints being thrown on the altar in Revelation. Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's the other thing I was thinking yeah. about. All of us blessed to die in the Lord are privileged to enter and abide in the tabernacle paradise of God, where we shall begin to enjoy the fel- uh, his fellowship forevermore. These three articles also speak to God's eternal provision for us in the paradise to come. The bread speaks of physical sustenance and life, eternal life. The light speaks of spiritual illumination and truth, divine truth. And the incense speaks of spirit- physical and spiritual joy, everlasting joy. In the tabernacles of heaven... All our needs will be provided for as we have fellowship with the Trinity for all eternity because the sacrifice of Jesus and our decision to follow him in this life. Thus, the tabernacle is effective shorthand for the eternal bliss that should be our focus in this life 
as well as the means to achieving it through the acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ. Hmm. So provision of every aspect of what we need is there. Um, as illustrated by the tabernacle, therefore, Eden, or paradise, is the place where God fellowships with sanctified mankind. It is a place of delight because there is no greater joy than commuting with God apart from sin and the troubles of the world we now know. But despite the trials and tribulations that are inevitable for believers uh, in, in the devil's world, it is also important to note that this place, that is certainly no paradise, God has nevertheless always made it possible for those who would seek him to, quote, walk with him, as in Genesis 5. Hmm. Moreover, in the days of Israel, he dwelt amongst the congregation of believers, and today he and his son dwell in the hearts of those who have believed and so received his Holy Spirit. Our fellowship with God now is a foretaste of the bliss and delight of the restored Eden to come when the dwelling of God shall come to men, as Revelation 21 says in 22. Mm -hmm. It remains to consider in a comprehensive manner all the manifestations of Eden Paradise. In order to lay a sure foundation for our discussion of the original fall of one of God's creatures from perfect fellowship, namely that of Satan. So, we're going to get into the next section, talks about his hypothesis of the seven Edens. Hmm. I don't know about that. That sounds like some nutty well, stuff. Well, we're going to find out what his... Uh, he's going to have to make the argument based upon Scripture. I'll give you a little taste of it here, okay, before we get before we list the seven. Mm -hmm. As the foregoing discussion has indicated, the biblical terms Eden and Paradise are synonymous for the place of perfect pleasure and fellowship with God. These words, therefore, have, as we have already seen in brief, a wider range of application than the garden in which God placed Adam and Eve. Common factors in every place that bears the name Paradise or Eden include delightful sights and sounds, enjoyable work or worship, physical and spiritual wholeness, and most importantly, the presence of and fellowship of God himself. Uh, seven distinct paradises may be distinguished in Scripture. They are all perfect places God has established for communing with his creatures, dating from angelic prehistory to the end of time. And this, we're going to get into that. Whoa. Okay? So I think what he's going to try to show here is that there is a, there is a throughout recorded history, there is a repeated cycle of how God develops a place around him and, and a purpose mm. and a progression of it. It's interesting. That really goes along with some stuff that I've been studying, the cyclical nature of Bible prophecy. So. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And I think this reinforces it well, too. Uh, I'm not going to get started in this because as we, we're going to list all these, and I think it's good to break mm -hmm. for right now Okay. for our next section. Mm -hmm. uh, ladies and gentlemen, take a look at this. Um, some people who've already read ahead have really, some good Bible students have really enjoyed this. And that's not to say they've agreed with every mm -hmm. um, hypothesis that P Professor Luganville makes. Well, at least but they have found it. It's, it's good, refreshing food for thought and taking useful. I think just our discussion of the tabernacle mm -hmm. and our relationship with God was uh, was very lightning. Yeah, at least, I mean, it's it's like semi-coherent based on the Bible. You know, that's which which beats some than, of our guests. I was going to say that's a lot more than <laughs> a lot more than some prophecy teachers out there. That's right, and uh, I, I'm skipping over most of the Bible, um, Bible references because there are so many. Uh, you all go read these, and this is a good habit to get into. You read them mm -hmm. and draw your own conclusions on whether he makes his case as well as any of ours, and I'm sure he would agree with that too. Uh, somebody else you can agree with was Margaret, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we have to go. That's it. Come back, find out uh, his hypothesis on the seven Edens tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ding! Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, question mark, about the seven Edens. This better be good, bionic. I don't know. Here come the question marks back. Yeah. Before we're over, it'll be four question marks. Four question marks, comma, hyphenation. Well, that's what makes Future Quake so interesting. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're new with us this week, the reason why he's putting it out there is we're reading and reviewing some very interesting material from the work of Professor Robert Luganbill. Uh, and it's published on his Igthus website, and that's spelled I-C-H-T-H-Y-S, igthus.com. Uh, we're reading a, a work that he's got online there called The Satanic Rebellion, Background of the Tribulation. And we're reading part one of it called Satan's Rebellion and Fall. Uh, we normally will have the guest actually on here so we can hold him to task and work him over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, for various reasons, he couldn't be available for us for this. Hopefully, we'll have him on soon. Mm-hmm. But we, two months ago, did a uh, part one, just reviewing this, seeing if anybody found it interesting. Mm-hmm. And the emails overwhelmingly was, yes, they did find it interesting. So we're taking three days this week to review his material, and we're going to start a very provocative uh, second part here this week. Talking about the uh, seven Edens. And this is a crux of some of his early hypotheses and mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of you Bible students out there are raised an eyebrow, probably thinking, "Okay, where are you getting this from?" Okay, buddy? well, where are you going to pr- where are you going to bring in the doctrine of imminency? Prove or prove your point in here. So yeah. we're going we're going to see, and we're ready to dive right into his main hypothesis of the seven Edens of the early okay. age of the church. Actually, this goes through all recorded history. Let me ju- let me just uh, reiterate again for new people joining us. Uh, he says, as the foregoing discussions indicated, the biblical terms Eden and paradise are synonymous for the place of perfect pleasure in fellowship with God. These words, therefore, uh, as, as we have already seen in brief, a wider range of application than the garden in which God placed Adam and Eve. Common factors in every place that bears the name paradise or Eden include delightful sights and sounds, enjoyable work or worship, physical and spiritual wholeness, and most importantly, the presence of and fellowship with God himself. Seven distinct paradises may be distinguished in Scripture. They are all perfect places God has established for communing with his creatures, dating from angelic prehistory to the end of time. So I hope you got your seatbelt tightened what? here. He's <laughs> going to talk about something very, very old and go on. And uh, if you have questions about this in, in, in our just quick review verbally in his work, Go look at his copious Bible references in this writing. Uh, his ri- this writing is available on his website. Go and make your own decisions on whether he makes his case. Okay, the first one is the perfect original earth. 
he begins by saying, The first Eden uh, is particularly germane to our present study, as it was the original place of meeting between God and angelic kind. It was from this first Eden, the earth and its original pristine perfection, not to be confused with the restored earth, home to Adam and Eve's Garden of Eden, hmm. you know, that Satan was expelled. This much is made clear by Ezekiel 28.13, where God declares of Satan, You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Okay. Okay. He makes this to be a pre- uh, prior Eden to mm-hmm. Adam and Eve. This first paradise, the place of God's throne and God's presence, was interestingly enough not in heaven but on earth, on quote the Mount of Assembly, the resources of the north, as quoted in Isaiah fourteen thirteen, Ezekiel twenty eight, and Psalm forty eight two mm-hmm. compared to Mount Zion. Since this point will prove to be an important one, some of the other references in the context of Isaiah 14, need to be considered in brief. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the quote, the term fallen from heaven in Isaiah 14:12 looks forward to events of Revelation 12:9, as does Ezekiel 28:17, uh, or 28:17, where he says, I threw you to the earth. So he's saying those are reference to a future event. Okay? Okay. Satan is expelled from this original paradise before the creation of man but will not be expelled from heaven until an appointed future time. Uh, is Job, Job 1 and 2. I will ascend into heaven. This quotation in the first part of verse 13 is better translated heavenward, meaning to the top of the Mount of Assembly, the place of God's throne on earth directly above the stars or other angels. I don't know about that. Well, hey. let's, I, you know, he's okay. just he's interpreting the certain Hebrew words uh, to mean that there is a this assembly is on a high top sure. on well, the original Eden, okay? Well, I, you can you can certainly make the case that uh, uh, you know God's assembly is on a mount, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, you can even go so far. There's a great and it may not look anything like the Earth we see. Sure, no. Uh, there's this a mount great, could it be like a hundred times the yeah of uh, you know a great hard to find book by a guy named uh, Richard Clifford. It's called the Holy Mount of God, and he goes mm-hmm. through and looks at all of the different cultures of that area, including the Hebrew, you know, Bible, Old mm-hmm. Testament, uh, and shows that uh, you know God was often seen on this assembly, the double, the the well watered double deep, deep where the the cedar planks go into the. I, I can't remember it all, but wow. it's, it's a really interesting, really interesting description that you can derive from various places in the Hebrew Bible. Huh. It's pretty far out. Okay. Well, let me just mention, you all need to look up these references that he's he's saying this, but his references are Job 25.3, Psm one hundred three twenty 20 and 21, mm-hmm. Isaiah 40.26, and Luke 2.13. So uh, he, he's saying that heavenward means it's, it's up to the top of the Mount of Assembly, which he says is this mountain, God's throne, mm-hmm. above the stars translated as angels, according mm-hmm. to him. Uh, number three, where it says above the top of the clouds in verse 14, confirms the earthly location of this mountain, which is so tall and imposing that it rises above the clouds, though located on the earth. Okay. There are also a number of important points of similarity between this original lofty location of God's throne and Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay. One, it is a holy mountain, and so is Mount Zion. Number two, it is high and lofty, and Mount Zion is likewise destined to be raised above all the other mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Isaiah 2, mm-hmm. Ezekiel 40, uh, Micah 4, and Zechariah 14 say. 
Note that the New Jerusalem appears to have this same superior elevation as the source of the river of the water of life which flows from before God's throne. So he's saying this is basically a recurring lofty position for mm-hmm. God, but still connected to earth somehow. As the seat of God's throne, it is the center of the universe of that time, just as Jerusalem is described as the center of the world and will be the ultimate place of God's residence. It is described as, quote, Eden, the garden of God, just as the New Jerusalem, the ultimate Eden, will contain the river of the waters of life and the tree of life. Hmm. And that is an important point. The tree of life is supposed to be there. Which, you know, in, in the New Jerusalem, which we always associate with Eden. Interesting. So there is a connection that, that he sees this uh, cyclic uh, place of Eden being basically defined. Yeah, yeah, I see it sort of like how when the, whenever the president gets on an airplane, it's called Air Force One. Mm-hmm. If he gets on another plane, then it's Air Force One. It's like, well, if it's a place where God stays at some point in, in time, that's Eden. Hmm. That may be oversimplification. That's how I take his premise. Okay, now, uh, onward his discussion. B, this next one is the interim third heaven. After Satan's rebellion, the universe, naturally and from its original creation, a place of light, was, quote, blacked out. We have no way of knowing how long the Lord left Satan and his company in fearful anticipation of immediate judgment before restoring the earth and the universe. We can assume, however that there was still a place where he made his presence known for fellowship with the elect angels. This would have most likely be in heaven, given the devastation of planet Earth as an initial judgment upon and restraint of Satan's activities. A situation that will describe in part two of the series here. When restoration of the Earth does occur, along with the new Eden, we do in fact find the elect angels in God's presence, filled with joy as they observe the event which he says that uh, Job 38, 4-7 describes uh, at this stage. Okay? I have to look all these references up. Okay. Uh, so he says basically there was a judgment. Blackness happens over earth in the area. God moves his residence into the heavens mm-hmm. at this point. The angels, the elect angels, are able to reassemble with them during this, this time of judgment. Okay, number C, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the Garden of Eden this is the third one. The Garden of Eden, in which God pleased Adam and Eve, is by far the best known of the seven paradises. In part three of this series, we shall cover the purpose, creation, and fall of man in detail. Like the other Edens, it is a place of fellowship with God, a place of physical and spiritual delight, and a place of enjoyable occupation. Uh, Sweat and effort only exist after the fall. Attempts to fix a location for the garden based upon the description of the rivers in Genesis 2 a difficult task when the significant geographical alterations that must have been wrought by the worldwide flood of Genesis 7 are considered, often fail to take on account that the mention of Cush in Genesis 2.14 can be, and most probably is, a reference to the land of the Kassites, modern-day southern Iraq, or that for the rivers to flow downhill, location would have had to have been elevated, as Jerusalem is. Hmm. Okay. Now, we have the fourth one in his, in his model, Abraham's bosom. Believers who die in the Lord since his ascension to the presence of the Father go to be with him where he is, in heaven. However, before the resurrection, ascension, and, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
pre-cross believers were not admitted into the third heaven, but were instead taken to a provisional paradise in the heart of the earth, which Jesus calls Abraham's bosom, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The reason for this temporary separation, albeit a place uh, of blessing, was the prior requirement that sinful man be redeemed before entering into the presence of God. Uh, A promise in which the Old Testament believers had put their faith, but one which would not be fulfilled historically until the cross. That is why after the expulsion of Eden from Adam and Eve, God stationed his cherubs at the entrance to the garden, namely to deny mankind access to the tree of life, when sin made further direct communion with him impossible, without prior redemption from that sin. There thus could be no admittance to direct relationship with fellowship with God before or after death until Christ should pay in full with his precious blood uh, the uh, redemptive price for sinful mankind and therefore win access for us much more into the presence of the Father. Now, many Christians believe that Jesus himself made a what they call pre-incarnate appearances at various Mm -hmm. times in Scripture in Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, Many would say that the term the angel of the Lord often represents his presence. There are things where the uh, the angel of the Lord or a similar being is present and it receives worship, which we know no creative being of God that's on God's side would receive worship except God himself. And so it's been understood that while God the Father, his holiness and other facets are such that we could not stand his direct presence, uh, it has been thought that Jesus himself and his unique attributes allowed us to have such contact with him in isolated cases. I know that's a little offhand from from this, but um, okay. But you know, I mean, um, for example, the the fourth person in the fiery furnace that even Nebuchadnezzar recommended was likened to the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. The only person I've ever heard that described to be was Jesus himself. Yeah, that one's a tough one to make. Something Anything else. Anything else? Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a few others like that where where they say I have seen the Lord when they saw this person. Uh, either they were mistaken or or that's who they saw. And the understanding was that this is likely to be Jesus Christ who they saw, since Jesus had an attribute that somehow we, we could be in his presence. Mm-hmm. Okay. The abode of the Old Testament dead is often referred to by its Sheol, Hebrew name Sheol, uh, and New Testament's Hades, okay, ultimately translated in English versions as hell or the grave. As Luke uh, 16, 19-31 indicates, Sheol, hell or Hades, is composed of several compartments. Uh, in the place of the saved, Abraham's bosom, the place of blessing where Lazarus and company resided before Christ's ascension. Then there's the place of the unsaved, our shield proper or torments where the rich man finds himself. And then there's the abyss. Uh, not in the parable, but elsewhere in Luke, the place where certain of the fallen angels are presently incarcerated. Hmm. You know, that, that fell, talked about in Jude, for example. Okay, it is in the, to this interim Eden that Jesus refers... When on the cross, he tells the believing thief that today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Our Lord's proclamation of the angels in prison in the abyss. Part of his descent into Sheol or hell was referred to in 1 Peter 3.19. While hell proper and the abyss hold fast their inhabitants even today, the blessed occupants of Abraham's bosom were brought to heaven to be with our Lord in the wake of his ascension to the Father. Uh, And compare Psalm uh, 68.18. And Ephesians four eight through ten with John twelve twenty six. Okay, 
Hmm. I, I find that to be pretty common belief in Christian circles that he took those residing in Abraham's bosom after the cross into oh. heaven. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, the next one, the next Eden of his model, is the present third heaven. Deceased believers currently reside in the third heaven, the paradise, as we have seen uh, referred to in 2 Corinthians 12.4. This heaven is the place of the Father's throne and is also called the heaven of the heavens or highest heavens. Its location and character are the same as the interim third heaven, uh, as in point B, or the second Eden we talked about, with the important exception that it now serves as paradise for all who die in the Lord since his ascension to the Father's right hand. First and foremost, we can take great comfort in the fact that our destiny in the next life is inextricably linked to that of our Master, Jesus Christ. He has promised us unequivocally that we shall be where he is, which at this present time is at the Father's right hand. So, okay, so he says, of course... I can can agree with that. I mean, I don't don't know if that's Eden. Uh, It seems like an odd... I think you have to understand his definition of Eden. I mean, when we think of Eden, we think of the place where Adam and Eve hung out. Sure. He's saying Eden is really a broader term. That word means paradise or the place where God is. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what he's saying is that there are models or archetypes of where God resided at several points, and they all have commonalities. Sure. Well, uh, I agree with everything except for the the definition of Eden. I'm not sure if that's the definition of Eden or not, or if this is something that he's uh, doing to sort of make a point. Well, or, I, I don't know. We, I, I, we can go back and reiterate. We, we mentioned you know his definitions of the word. Yeah. Uh, it, it was... Uh, Termed Eden, the Old Testament paradise, well, and the New for the same place of place of delights. Okay, but I, I guess my question is: is that is this something that is this is something that I'm just not privy to, or um, I mean, does Eden really have that broad of a definition in in uh, the Hebrew Bible? In, in well, I, I would suggest you reread those those prior pages we just covered yesterday yeah. because. He says this is what the Hebrew word means for it, and here's what the Greek word means for it, and where it's referenced. And see if you um, think he yeah, makes his case. I guess case. I'm going to have to look at those references yeah, again. See if he makes it. Then let the chips fall where they may. Sure. Um, okay. Uh, he says several verses here, so we take heart, preferring to be away from the body, but at home with the Lord. And, you know, uh, Paul said, I'm torn between two alternatives, desiring to depart and to be with Christ. Um, but, of course, he stayed with us. Okay, um, we're almost done with our uh, with our Edens. Okay, mm-hmm. we're on four or five. Uh, let's see. That was number. That was E. So that was the fifth. Mm. Okay. Um, I bet you can guess what the last two are. Okay, when we do depart this life to be with the Lord, we should not be found naked. That is entirely disembodied, uh, but blessed habitation awaits us in the third heaven. Uh, an interim body to serve us until the time of our resurrection, one in which we shall be visible as the persons we have always been. Now, he gives references for his suppositions here, okay? Mm-hmm. Re- Revelation 6, 9. Um, he says, uh, an interim body to serve us. He says, see Peter uh, uh, for details. Uh, one capable of speaking, wearing clothing. Of course, the white robes are worn. Worshiping God and experiencing the joy of communion and fellowship with Him and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This joy is impossible for us to comprehend at present, but from the time of our transfer to the third heaven, probably as in the case of Abraham's bosom, conveyed there by angels, 
There should be no more unhappiness of any kind, only the bliss of eternity in the presence of the Lord. So he's going to make a comment. Uh, well, um, I made a note here. What about the martyrs under the altar? Um, they seem to be very uncomfortable. Yeah, no I don't know quite how to phrase that, but I mean they are uh, at a position of not being fully satisfied to because the they've least. not experienced justice. Yeah. And so I don't know how long, I assume since the time of their loss, uh, you know, great rewards go to those who give their lives for the Lord. Mm-hmm. But in this explanation, or you, you look in Revelation, they're at a time of, of sort of almost frustration because they're saying, how long until our blood be avenged? Mm-hmm. And you know something else that reminds me of, I get on my soapbox here. Murph? What? No. <laughs> well, that's, that's a little later. What What it says is is that justice... When misjustice has been served or injustice, it is so important that even creatures in heaven, uh, the ones who went before us, mm-hmm. are, haven't found haven't found total relief until they see justice done. And you know we don't make a big deal about justice because mostly in our country in America. What do you mean? I think we make a big deal about it. I mean, we being our larger community, perhaps not, but you. I'm and talking I. about American Christians. Oh. Okay, I'm talking America because we've been blessed to be in a land where, I mean, injustice happens. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've courts. We have, mostly we live pretty good lives. Very few of us are isolated cases. We've had mm-hmm. a bad case. So we don't really think a whole lot, particularly within the church, about the importance of justice. I know, and that's really sad because... Except it's all over the Old Testament. Yeah. And as we see, in heaven, heaven they cannot get total comfort or release because of injustice going on, on the earth. And then they must look at us and say, look, we're in heaven, abiding in God's presence, all worked up over the injustice on earth. Mm-hmm. And you're down there in the middle of the injustice, yawning about it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? You're yeah. rolling over, going to sleep, and injustice going on, right? I mean, it's something you could do something about. You know, we're up here on the throne, your, 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 you know, your brothers and sisters that have received this injustice, struggling, you know, waiting for it to be remedied. And you could care less down there on earth. I know. It's one of those things that makes me furious, to be honest. This is something that we could spend, I could spend days just venting yeah. about how Christians don't care about justice. But that just brought it back to mind. Yeah. You know, that, that whole... But we so, better move on before I get, I, I have to well, break the soapbox. I don't know, I, I don't know how those martyrs on the altar fit under what he just described. Mm-hmm. And, and they may just be an exception, you know, because his verses, he does, does show that at least in the time of Revelation, when we see the things that are going on mm-hmm. with the saints... At that time, they're they're you know pretty happy with things mm-hmm. except for the the martyrs. Okay, and then now the sixth one is the millennial Jerusalem. Okay, is another model of Eden. Okay, when Christ returns at the second advent, he will establish his kingdom and rule rule the entire world from Jerusalem as the capital of the messianic kingdom. Jerusalem will be the preeminent city on earth, even in a geographic sense, on the supernaturally elevated Mount Zion. The conditions uh, that will obt- uh, that will be obtained in the millennial Jerusalem will make it a veritable Eden restored. Hmm. And it says the Lord will have compassion on Zion and the companion on all her ruins, and He will make her desert like Eden, and her wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Isaiah fifteen fifty one three. Yeah, it's probably not an incidental reference there. In that blessed favorable season to come, the curse on the earth will be removed. Uh, and, and there's references of plenty here if you look it up. It'd be in interesting work. to see what the Septuagint said about that previous reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be. 
I'll look it up. And conditions similar to the garden restored. Comparable to the tree of life in Genesis 2.9 and to the trees of life in the final New Jerusalem, the millennial Edenic Jerusalem will also be provided with trees that share the same purpose of imparting spiritual as well as physical blessing. And on the bank of the river gorge on both sides will spring up every sort of food-producing tree. Their foliage will not wither and their produce fail, but every month they will yield a new crop, for they will be irrigated by the waters flowing from the sanctuary. Their produce will serve as food and foliage as medicine. Ezekiel 47. Talk about homeopathic remedies. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, And it is not only in the tree of life that the millennial Jerusalem will resemble Eden's past and present. For the river on whose banks the trees described above will flourish, will share important qualities with the rivers of Genesis chapter 2 and with the river of the water of life in Revelation chapter 22. One is a central source. Just as water flowed out of the Garden of Eden, so the millennial river of living water will rise from a fountainhead at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. A very similar scene to the river of the water life in Revelation 22. Uh, fertile effect. The river is associated with agricultural fecundity. Is that basically like stuff grows from it? Mm-hmm. And abundant fisheries in Ezekiel 47, 1-12. While Joel 3.18 connects the fountain with the blossoming of the land in general. A similar symbolic reference in Isaiah 66.12. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. And third, a life-giving influence. The river is one of living water in Zechariah 14.8, a title which, in light of Revelation 22, suggests the spiritual blessings it will confer. The kingdom of heaven, as it will be set up by Christ following his second advent, presents a unique situation in its capacity as the sixth Eden. For unlike the garden of Adam and Eve, or the final paradise... New Jerusalem, it and the rejuvenated earth will be home to a mixed population that will include individuals both imperfect, people of very spiritual states still in their natural bodies, and perfect, resurrected believers. The righteous rule of Christ, Psalm 2.9, will suppress the effects of the sin nature, hmm. uh, so pronounced in our experience, like crime and war. And the result will be a veritable heaven on earth, an environment as perfect as possible, given the limitation uh, that it will contain imperfect human beings. A world overflowing with blessing in its sights and sounds, its prosperity, and in the physical and spiritual wholeness flowing north from Jerusalem. Now, you know, that's the kind of environment that the dominionists think they can create themselves. Yeah. They they believe they'll do the same thing. That they they can coexist along with unredeemed people. But through their own power and strength, and I assume they feel like this God working through them, they will be able to do just what Jesus said he will do. Mm-hmm. Is basically restore it, even where redeemed and unredeemed are present on the earth. Mm-hmm. The, the millennium, they, they basically take away the need for the millennium. Or the fact that Jesus Christ, through his personal reign here, mm-hmm. would actually do what the dominions want to do on their own. Wow. They're reproducing a millennium, basically. Yeah. With their own rod of iron instead of Jesus' rod of iron. Well, and that seems to me... Based on some of some of the teachings of the end times, that seems to be, you know, at least partially there for non-believers. You know, just mm-hmm. just like well, you know, the Antichrist the real- rides forth promising this mm-hmm. uh, Edenic 
type thing. Well, you know they're going to rear their head at the end of the millennium, too. That's why some mm-hmm. bad folk are there mm-hmm. to cause problems. Speaking of bad folk, Murr, would you come tell the listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, but we got a call in today for this one. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, come back. We're going to do one more segment this week with the work of Robert Luganbill. It will continue to get more intriguing. Study his work and, most importantly, your Bibles uh, to see what you think fits within this. But until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. I'm not sure about this Ichthus guy, but it sure is really interesting. I'm enjoying it immensely. Bionic. Well, you put your position right there out out in the front. We'll let our Futurians make the decision. We've been reviewing this week. Actually, it's been a a second return. Mm -hmm. Our first visit with the writings of Robert Luganville were about two months ago. Mm -hmm. We got a lot of positive feedback from it. People who found it interesting, Mm thought-provoking, went back in their scriptures, looking at a lot of them, went to his website, uh, and this week, at least uh, the middle shows of this week, we have been going through a, through a second stage of our review of his work. We're reviewing his work called The Satanic Rebellion, Background to the Tribulation, and particularly Part 1, which is Satan's Rebellion and Fall. It's such a deep work that we've been actually just reading it, and uh, we only get through about 10 pages or so in a week mm-hmm. because of the depth of the material that's yeah. there. You know what I appreciate um, about it? Um, like I said, I don't endorse or refute his position, but I appreciate. Are you like uh, lukewarm? You're neither cold nor hot. Yeah, it's a good thing Lugan Bill is not in charge; otherwise, he'd have to spew me out of his yeah, mouth. Yeah. Um, but uh, one thing I do appreciate about it is that it does have a it does have a coherent nature to it that is much higher, shall we say, than many other Bible prophecy writers out there who just throw stuff on the wall see if it sticks. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, that's kind of how I believe. So. Well, I'm glossing over a lot of his biblical references. Sure. Just because somebody writes a bunch of references at the end of the sentence doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. But at least gives something for us and our listeners to go back and look up. Mm-hmm. You hear something that's... And, and the only reason we'd even bother if it's something provocative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people don't get worked up. Like, if you hear something that's not what you've believed or thought before, that, oh, these guys are heretics. The purpose of the Future Quick Show is to take people who are serious about Bible study who have some of these issues and don't get talked about much of the church, and at least put it out there for those who are sober-minded among us that want to study God's Word and, mm-hmm. and constantly be enlightened on what, on the treasures it shows mm-hmm. to be able to have a chance to grow and to hear. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to accept everything you hear on this show, mm-hmm. but uh, he does a very respectable work with this, and we'll leave it up to each Futurian to see what sticks with him after they've looked at his references in the Bible, mm-hmm. and we'd like to hear from him on it. So, Anyway... We're going to proceed. Uh, we've been talking about his supposition, and if, if you've not been with us, 
uh, this week, he's talked about the term Eden, which he says is a general term for the place where God resides and a place of delights uh, from the original word in Hebrew. And he says the word paradise in the Greek uh, basically means the same thing as it was chosen. It came from from a uh, word from the Persians, and it was made, uh, the Greek writers turned it into the word paradise, which means basically the same thing. So he's looking at a somewhat generic term of Eden being uh, different stages of the domain of God. And he has shown how they have very similarities with the structural elements that are there, their function, the kind of state people are in there. Mm-hmm. And that's been his basic premise so far in our review of his work. And we're going to pick up to, to look at his seventh and last Eden, and this is called the New Jerusalem. Um, and he, he continues here in his narrative. Most of what we know about the ultimate eternal state, the last Eden, is from the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Mm-hmm. But the new heavens and the new earth, the location of the New Jerusalem, are well known throughout Scripture. In contrast to the new heavens and new earth, the biblical principle of the transience of human life, Isaiah 46-8, applies with equal force to the present old world in which we now live. Uh, where it says, for in this world and its present form is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7-31. And also the world and its lust are passing away. 1 John 2. Satan's rebellion, the fall of man, and the sin that has marred all of human history, and which has, uh, was judged in Christ on the cross, has made necessary the complete destruction of the universe in which we now dwell. For our eternal abode, where we will be with God forever, he has in mind a place where there is no longer the slightest taint of sin or rebellion, where only righteousness dwells, that is, the Father's kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire by that same word of God, preserved for the day of judgment and the destruction of godless men. Let not this one fact escape your attention. He's taking this out of Second Peter 3. Mm-hmm. Then, beloved, namely that one day is like a thousand years in the Lord's eyes and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not delaying in the fulfillment of his promise, as some think. Rather, he is exercising patience for your sake being unwilling for anyone to perish, but desiring all instead to come to repentance. It's a very powerful passage. Mm -hmm. He has patience. Let me just reiterate for for our listeners. He has patience for your sakes. He's unwilling that anybody should perish. And he desires that all, A-L-L, all, come to repentance. What about Muslims? I don't know if that's an exception to the all or not. I'd I'd have to look in the Greek. I, I sort of doubt it. I assume that's in there, too. I think they have a picture of... No, well, never mind. I know where you're coming from. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a day in which the heavens will depart with a roar, the very elements will ignite and dissolve, and the earth and everything which has been done upon it will be laid bare for the Lord's inspection. Since all these things are destined to disintegrate in this way, consider what sort of Christians we ought to be, devoted to holy and godly conduct as we wait with eager expectation and apprehension the advent of the day of God. For on that day the heavens and earth will burst into flame and dissolve, and the elements will catch fire and melt. But we are awaiting new heavens and a new earth, just as he promised, a world where righteousness dwells. You ever wondered, I I don't think he gets into this, but like when that happens, I assume the whole universe is part of the heavens will do it. Where are we going to be? Where's the bleachers for that? 
maybe it's it's unimportant and hmm. not for us to know. But you know, I assume we're going to be watching that, unless it's like a, a nanosecond kind of thing, you know, where it's just suddenly gone. But uh, if it's some kind of big flame out event, I just wonder where we, the angels and others, will be watching this kind of thing. Interesting question. And also, I assume if if hell has an eternal state or the lake of fire, it says it'll burn forever and ever, there's got to be something that resides from the old in that. That's an interesting thought. Now, it could, well, I'm trying to think. Can you think of a reference, this will show my Bible ignorance, a reference to the current existence of the lake of fire? I'm not talking about Hades or Sheol. Or the abyss, the, where the lake of fire currently exists. Because I don't think anybody is residing in there right now. No, but I could tell you I've sampled it with the uh, the hot Indian food that I made. The hot Indian food? Oh. You think that's close to it? Yeah. Here's what I'm getting at. I never really thought about this, right? I'm thinking out loud, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the lake of fire really hasn't had a purpose so far. I mean, we've had Hades with the abode of the dead with the abyss. Mm-hmm. The lake of fire hasn't had a purpose. But we see the Antichrist and false... Well, I take that back. I'm trying to picture the Antichrist and false prophet. If they're thrown on the lake of fire at the beginning of the millennium, because otherwise the lake of fire really has its purpose at the end of the millennium, which would be simultaneous with the new heavens and new earth. What, the point I was trying to make is the lake of fire really more associated with the new heavens and new earth is the abode for the judged after the great white throne judgment. But I'll have to go back and take a quick peek at that again. Because, I mean... The lake of fire is its whole separate residence. Yeah, I never really thought about it in that. In I have to go look at it further. A, interesting. You're you're much more intelligent than I am. <laughs> you have no intelligence. Okay, um, let's proceed with the New Jerusalem. Uh, let's see here. It is significant to note that this ultimate paradise will not be in heaven, but on the new earth. When the New Jerusalem descends from heaven. Now, see, I got, I've always gotten the sense that those are united somehow. Like, they've, they've come together. What, heavens and earth? Yeah, the heaven, the heaven and earth are now one. Or they remake heaven and... I, I have to go how, back and How would that be? They make the universe like a, a gas giant? Or there's some continuum of mass? Because earth is typically a place where you've got physical structure and something you stand on. And well, sure, but it's also... Where a, heaven is not. Okay, well... Well... Maybe, maybe not. If there's really a mountain in the spirit world, uh, spirit beings, they, do they mm-hmm. do they not stand on it? Or but we do have physical bodies. Okay, but when we're when we're saved and brought into God's kingdom, you know, we get these new bodies, which are uh, presumably part spirit and part physical. Uh, sort of superhuman, I guess yeah. you could call them yeah. super physical. But they tend to. I mean, one important aspect is is that they're you know. But they are physical. Yeah. The one important aspect is they're both physical and spiritual, mm-hmm. and they we get to hang out in heaven. So, uh, but it does say we live on earth. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Just uh, reading those passages, I've always gotten the sense that uh, reading various passages about it, like somehow heaven and heaven and earth are like come together or something, or they remake heaven, or they remake the earth as the new. Well, he does say, he says, "Behold, I'm making all things new." Yeah, and Jerusalem, does which is come the most mind-blowing thing, to be on Earth. So, mm-hmm. but it goes from A to B. That means there's a separate A and B. But yeah, but then they like come together. That's my point. They come together. Well, 
the Jerusalem does. Yeah. Jerusalem goes from one destination site to the other. I'm going to have to read that. Well, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Okay. Um, as creatures created to dwell on the earth, it makes perfect sense that earth, not heaven, should be our final home. And as the original Eden, you know, that blows a lot of people's mind what they learned in Sunday school or the pictures they saw on the wall where they, sure. pictures with harps, mm-hmm. you know, and wings. As the original Eden was on earth, a place where God communed and with the angels until sin entered the pictures through Satan's fall and rebellion. That's his model. Uh, it should also come as no surprise that the Father himself will, will, will reside with us in the ultimate paradise. You know, one thing you can say, whether he's right or wrong in his model, it at least gives a little bit of explanation why the Father ends up here. Otherwise, it seems mm. rather strange why he would make here, if he's lived in the heavens, what we think of the heavens, mm-hmm. for forever, mm-hmm. why would he suddenly change abode for here, rather than bringing us up there with him? And his, well, but I he's think, done that before. I mean, he lived, he lived up in heaven in in this, the the temple, and then came and dwelled with man in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. And well, his presence hovered. Hovered over well, it. Well, yeah, but Ezekiel's even more explicit. Like he actually jumps on his mobile throne, and then. But it was still up the in the heavens. It was still up in the heavens. Um, I mean, he would come down and make contact, like on Sinai and places like that. But when they saw his heavens, it, like you said, it was a mobile version. You know, Ezekiel saw, but it was moving around. I'll have to go back. It, and look it didn't at that. stop here in light. Well, yeah, no, but on he, Earth. Well, but I from from the from the text i've always sort of assumed that god was dwelling in the temple uh his presence indwelt it but i never understood that to be in a sense just like he described in his text the the um mercy seat mm-hmm. was a metaphor for the throne of god but i think that's where it stops it's a place where of, of interaction but at the same time god dwelt in heaven okay he wasn't there in lieu of heaven like he didn't move down to his main digs in the temple no, instead of like heaven. He was still it was on like the throne. Like a weekend apartment, you know. <laughs> he came down and hung out. And yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. The, the 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 I guess off the top of my head, the primary example would be is when uh, is when it says God actually got up out of the got up and he got, was on his throne and he came up out of the temple and then went over the east wall back up into heaven. And I think it even says back. And that passage is in... Ezekiel 10? Yeah, I'll go back and look at that. Yeah. Maybe. Do you think the throne in heaven was just unoccupied or... Sorry, we're closed for a little while? Yeah, it was like back? one of those, cl- you know, cleaning, caution, cleaning uh, signs, a little okay, yellow thing. a little yellow placard yeah. up there. I mean, we don't mean to be irreverent. It's just that the, it, these things are so hard for us to grasp. Yeah. All we have are scripture to give us some kind of... Uh, I know. And our clue, own limited, clue of what is limited, uh, and I guess I started that because I was trying to say that that was a feather in, in Professor Ludenbill's cap, in that he, he showed a proclivity of of God to heaven mm-hmm. uh, or to earth, excuse me, to mm-hmm. to dwelling on earth, uh, based upon his model that believes that God has had his previous headquarters here on earth. Okay, um, the New Jerusalem will be a true paradise in every sense of the word. Uh, it will contain the tree of life and the river of the water of life. God will be present there in person, and we will enjoy fellowship with him. Finally, this ultimate Eden will be a place of exquisite beauty, 
where the pain and suffering of this life will be a distant memory. In this way, everything will come full circle for humanity. Having lost paradise in this first instance, because of the sacrifice of Christ and the grace of God, we are destined to reclaim it in the end, and as is frequently the case where the wisdom, grace, and majesty of God are concerned. What we will have in the end will be far better than Adam and Eve had in the beginning. A glorious new Jerusalem, which will far outshine the glories of the garden, and an eternity of perfect communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our new perfect bodies with no further possibility of sin. Which leads to another thing that I've always been curious about, and it maybe I've just overlooked it in Scripture, is, is what will the activity of the Holy Spirit be during that period of time? We actually read about a few of the things that the Father, where he is, what he's doing, mm-hmm. even the Son, but we I don't know of something that refers to what would be God's Holy Spirit. Interesting question. I'm That's a very interesting question. Never noticed. I'm sure he will be doing the perfect thing for what he will be doing. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, his, as I understand Scripture, his task has been to basically will convict of righteousness, sin, and judgment, to also to reflect on Christ, on mm-hmm. the Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from I'm paraphrasing Bible passages, but that was part of his mission uh, in the Godhead. Mm-hmm. What will then be his state there? It, it's interesting, too, to reflect on the idea of uh, Jewish binatarianism. This whole idea that they had two powers in heaven, right. and you were allowed a range of options to think about it. If uh, perhaps the Holy Spirit like really moves into the background, you have this, you have another sort of conception of that. But now with like the Father and the Son, with the Holy Spirit really, you know, I don't know, doing doing whatever it does in that thing. Well, the Holy Spirit may be a part of the Godhead that never really has an intended locality. By that, you know, or an imbo- human Im- or human-like embodiment. Yeah. Like we picture the Father, we even have have anthropomorphic descriptions of Him on the throne. Mm-hmm. We obviously have it of Jesus. I've never seen the Holy Spirit described really that way, even mm-hmm. though He's given a masculine tense typically. Mm-hmm. But He's usually described as the wind. You know, there may be a breeze in the New Jerusalem, you and that is the yeah. Holy Spirit moving through. You know, that could be. There may be a breeze of knowledge. You may be sitting on your back porch in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit breeze blows through, and suddenly, you know all these additional I things. Go pay my electric bill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't picture yeah. a lot of electric bills there, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Because that's that's much of what the Holy Spirit does. Mm-hmm. Is, I gotta is go a love light. my neighbor now, more. Now he won't convict of sin and judgment because that will all be be over and done with. Mm-hmm. But there could be new glories about the manifest wisdom of God that he may be still. Blowing through completely unhindered, our sins will not be there to stop his action. But it always says he's he's like a wind. He moves wherever he will. So, you know, you just might see a wind on the horizon there on the new heavens and new earth. And it's the Holy Spirit coming. Mm-hmm. And it goes through and all of a sudden everybody's doing something different or thinking different and moves on. Mm-hmm. Maybe speculating a wee bit, but no, that's okay. just very curious about that's, that. That's sort of the nature of this of the show. Okay. Uh, here's a little pe- thing he puts in our own personal Eden. Um, tribulation we will have as long as we live in the present earth under Satan's sway. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can, in spite of pain and privation, begin to enjoy the most important benefit of paradise here and now. Uh, that is communion and fellowship with our God. The Holy Spirit is the river of life springing up within us, our pledge of eternal life. Our Lord Jesus Christ is within us too. 
He is well known to us as the branch uh, and the true vine in whom we bear fruit. He sacrificed himself for us on a tree that we might live, or might forever enjoy the right to the tree of life. And we've been promised by him that if we love and obey him, the Father too will fellowship with us. So that even on this sinful earth, our bodies, imperfect as they are at this present time, are temples of the living God. Mm. Which, which is a mind-numbing thing. Our bodies struggle, not only have physical ailments, mm. but they struggle with the flesh. You know, we war in our flesh, you know, mm. in our sinful nature, and it's still the dwelling place of the living God. I know. Is, I've wondered about that myself. Which, um, you know, and, and I think the Holy Spirit, again, is that embodiment of that indwelling. Uh, it says, with whom we are always free to enjoy communion, the greatest blessing of paradise, right here in the midst of the devil's world. And he closes with a passage here in Psalm 1. Happy is the man who does not walk in the path of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight instead is the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his law day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted where the waters divide, and which will yield its fruit in its season, and whose leaf will not wither. And I think he uses that to show that that that's a indicative nature of what's in Eden. And we have the option right now to basically, between our ears, live in Eden. And I think that's what that paragraph was just talking about. Mm. Uh, just like we talk about, you know, living heavenward or heavenbound or yeah, that mindset. Yeah, dead to this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Abraham, you know, was described to Abraham. said he, he, he sought a city not made with human hands. And the Bible says we are to be pilgrims in this world. Mm-hmm. And so we can dwell in Eden. He's through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us a chance to, it's like the old commercial, Calgon, take me away, you know. <laughs> We can be taken away from what we're experiencing right now. And there are Christians suffering in prisons somewhere, locked away, forgotten, mm-hmm. that are dwelling in Eden right now. I know. That that really brings to mind a lot of the things that Richard Warmbrandt writ, yeah, wrote. Yeah, right. Uh, he talked about forgetting his whole theology and everything and and uh, being, um, being uh, ministered to by a living embodiment of Jesus in his cell where God said, I'm, I'm here, I'm here for you. I've wiped away every sin, and I've caught every one of your tears in a bottle, and just—it's just, it's just mm-hmm. amazing. That was a personal experience with God after He'd given all over to God. Mm-hmm. He'd he given was, everything. Yeah, solitary confinement for like three years. They fed him one piece of bread a week and dirty soup once a day. Yeah, that's just like wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a living—you know—that incident he just said is a, is is a living description of the passage that says. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Mm-hmm. Because he was surrounded by his enemies right there. And in the middle of it, not taken out of it, in the middle, mm-hmm. Jesus came down and prepared a table for him. Wow. That is so, um, like my personal walk is one of those things I've really tried to live out more. The whole idea of being really being dead to this world and dead to other things. and hmm It's, I think I do like a pretty good job until a bunch of things go wrong at once. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I do a lot of great things in the Christian world until it becomes hard to do it. Yeah, that's the only time I really mess up is when I have any kind of resistance to it. Yeah, I know. And then suddenly, suddenly you lose that heavenly mind frame. Yeah. Like, oh well, I'm really dead to all yeah. of this hardship. I need to just yeah. keep going, irrespective. I'm much like the apostles. In fact, I would describe myself like the apostles in that Peter I will, during the Galatians encounter. Well, I was going to say I will follow Jesus anywhere, do anything for you, unless I get sleepy. Yeah. If I get sleepy, I can't pray with you like that because I'll do any. I'll give you my life. I just I can't miss any should I. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, that hurts and a little bit. I relate. Yeah, that hurts a little bit, to be honest. Well. That's my problem, too. Yeah. Uh, all of us Futurians, I'm sure I can speak for all of us. We wrestle that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We've just got about four minutes left. Would you like to give me a little taste? We're going to yeah. enter a major new roll, section. Roll tanks. We're going to stop talking about like that nice sweet stuff and talk about Satan for a while. But all I can do is introduce it just to sort of whet people's appetite for mm-hmm. our next go around with Professor Luganville. In his se- next section, Satan's original status, he says, "We return now to the original paradise, the primordial angelic Eden." Now, this is what he calls Eden 1, okay? Mm -hmm. Keep your scorecards right. To a time before Satan had rebelled from God and had fallen from his privileged status. What we know about Satan in his pristine state comes mainly from the testimony of Isaiah in chapter 14 and Ezekiel in chapter 28. When we consider in some detail the information contained in these two chapters, we can arrive at a rather vivid picture of Satan's situation before uh, he rejected God. In anticipation of the points about to be covered, uh, suffice it to say that the devil was the preeminent creature in the universe before his fall. Now, creature, remember. Mm-hmm. And each of the various characteristics described below call attention to specific aspects of this preeminence. Satan is described by these two prophets as A, the morning star and son of the dawn, B, one who sealed up perfection, C, full of wisdom, D, exemplifying beauty, E, in Eden, and F, adorned with precious stones, G, equipped with timbrels and pipes, H, anointed, I, a cherub, J, one who covers, K, on the holy mountain of God, and uh, L, walking amidst the stones of fire. Hmm. Okay, those are the elements of this time. Okay, the first one, A, morning star, Isaiah 14, 12. This title speaks of Satan's role in reflecting the glory of God, uh, such as Job 38.7, where all the elect angels are described as stars in the morning. The Hebrew Hallel, uh, literally shining one, was translated in the Greek Old Testament as light bearer and by the Latin Vulgate as Lucifer. Morning star or day star is an apt rendering of this title, for it betokens a heavenly body so brilliant that it can be seen even in daylight. As the prime creature of this primordial Eden, a place without darkness, for darkness did not exist before Satan's fall, Satan was the foremost representative of God's splendor, mirroring all for all angelic kind to behold the brilliant glory of their creator. It is a tragic irony that through his own choice he has now become the ruler of the domain of darkness. Far from reflecting God's glory... Uh, He now opposes it in every way, but his ultimate destiny is to have his own light extinguished forever. In contrast to Satan, our Lord Jesus Christ, the new morning star, uh, is the perfect reflection of the Father's glory. Uh, The next part, uh, he mentions sealing perfection from Ezekiel 28.12. Sealing perfection or proportion is a literal rendering from the Hebrew and can be expanded to the meaning the one who who puts his seal on harmonious proportion, or better, the touchstone of symmetry, that is, norms and standards of all kinds as seen from the divine point of view. That is to say, Satan in his unfallen state could be looked to as one who upheld, embodied, and represented perfect divine standards. It is a tragic story that he is now the prime example of all that is wicked, wrong, and anti-God. 
In contrast to Satan, our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died to satisfy the Father's righteous standard regarding our Son. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, but um, what's interesting is that I think you can see sometimes in the occult societies, people who follow Lucifer, they do have a, a, a appreciation for proportion, mm-hmm. for symbols, for n- repeated numbers, math, that kind of thing, which maybe shows some of his heritage. But ultimately, he became father of chaos mm. and everything is perverse and not harmonious. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't use an analogy here. So, Mary, would you please come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's going to be it for... Dr. Logan Bell for now. Okay. Well, we'll get on to him maybe next month. We're getting about 10 pages per visit, so keep reading his section. Uh, Let us know what you think. But uh, we'll have some news tomorrow. But until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Not a fan of prominent bloggers that clandestinely work for the military. Bionic. There's a not a fan of. Sorry. We, we want to get we want to be positive spirited. Alright. I am a fan of positive bloggers. Of 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 truthful bloggers. To get positive or negative. Okay. Bionic. Glad we got that straightened out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. Uh it is Friday. Mm-hmm. And that means something. What does that mean, Tom Bionic? It means it's time to dissect the world's problems and read all the read all of the stories that nobody else will do. I'll accept that for an answer. Awesome. Okay. Um, being very libertarian today, to each their own. <laughs> I call it tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. That's good too. Where we review the news every Friday, even though we had a preemptive segment on Monday. Mm-hmm. Just to try to keep our Futurians off kilter out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the traditional one. You all can relax. Every, the axis is back straight on the globe. You know, mm-hmm. we're back on Friday in news. So mm-hmm. we're at it. And do you have a news story? Sure. Us? This uh, this comes via uh, Cryptome. It's a website that deals in a lot of... So that's CR, like cryptology. It's yeah. not about Krypton, the planet. No. Okay. Uh, C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-E. Okay. This is a PDF they got from the U.S. Special Operations Command. Okay. Uh, and I've and I've uh, printed out some, you know, things that might be interesting. Sure. Uh, this is referring to blogs and military information strategy. In this regard, information strategists can consider clandestinely recruiting or hiring prominent bloggers or other persons of prominence already within the target nation, group, or community to pass the U.S. message. In this way, the U.S. can overleap entrenched inequalities and make use of pre-existing intellectual and social capital. Sometimes numbers can be effective. Hiring a block of bloggers to verbally attack a specific person or promote a specific message may be worth considering. Now, they're going to pass money to them? Yes. 
So they're taking somebody who's already established himself as mm-hmm. some kind of honest, unbiased commentator. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, we'll give you money to uh, game the system, yes. to, to use people's trust in you. Mm-hmm. Well, why would we ever, ever distrust our government when they do wonderful things like this? Why would we ever distrust what they do at Guantanamo Bay or what they tell us about the wars going on and it's, things? When it's, it's to stop premature, unnecessary debate, as my next story covers. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, moving on. An alternative strategy is to make, quote-unquote, a blog or blogger. The process of boosting the blog to a position of influence could take some time, however, and depending on the person running the blog may impose a significant educational burden in terms of cultural and linguistic training before the blog could be put online to any useful effect. Still, there are people in the military today who like to blog. In some cases, their talents might be redirected toward operating blogs as part of an information campaign. If a military blog offers valuable information that is not available from other sources, it could rise in rank fairly rapidly. Um, any blogs or bloggers serving an I.O. message, which is information, uh, um, I'm blanking out, sorry, I.O. mission, must be coordinated and synchronized with the overall influence effort in time and message. Uh, however, this must be prepared. They must be prepared to argue and debate within their audience uh, successfully and independently on behalf of the U.S. policy stance. In this sense, bloggers must be able to circumvent the hierarchy, quote-unquote, as, as blogger uh, George DeFermos uh, De put it. This means they must be trusted implicitly to handle the arguments without forcing them to communicate solely by means of marketing pitches and press releases. Um, scanning down here. Um, uh, moreover, such action will likely produce uh, even more interest in the sites and contents. Also, taking down a site that is known to pass enemy uh, essential elements of information, uh, and uh, and that gives us their key messages, denies us a valuable information resource. This is not to say that once the information passed down becomes redundant or superseded by a better source that the site should be taken down. At that point, the enemy, enemy blog might be used covertly as a vehicle for friendly information operations. Uh, and this is one that I found particularly interesting. Hacking the site and subtly changing the messages and data, merely a few words or phrases may be sufficient to begin destroying the blogger's credibility with the audience. Uh, better yet, if the blogger happens to pa- be passing enemy communications and logistics data, the information content could be corrupted. If the messages are subtly tweaked and the data corrupted in the right way, the enemy may reason that the blogger in question has betrayed them and either take down the site and the blogger themselves or by threatening such action give the U.S. an opportunity to offer the individual amnesty in exchange for information. There will also be times... Uh, This is another highlighted one. There will also be times when it is thought to be necessary in the context of an integrated information campaign to pass false or erroneous information through the media on all three layers in support of military deception activities. Given the watchdog functions that many in the blogger community have assumed, not just in the U.S. but also around the world, doing so jeopardizes the entire U.S. information effort. Credibility is the heart and soul of influence operations. In these cases, extra care must be taken to ensure plausible plausible deniability and non-attribution, as well as employing a well-thought-out deception operation that minimizes the risk of exposure. Because of the potential blowback effect, 
information strategy should avoid planting false information as much as possible. Now, I don't know about that last what? one. I know. that not that weird? Uh, uh, but changing the words of things, to change, isn't that basically the same thing as planting false information? Not if you went to the U.S. Army War College and read there. Not to the not to the author of the Joint Special Operations Universities. Uh, I can't remember the name of this document. You know, it's easy for me to get lost in the weeds on that, even though I've worked in the government for a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But basically, what there's here's what I took from this, and correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of people worried, a lot of us worried about the government shutting down the internet because the government complains so much that the internet is able for free people to be able to show information that shows the corruption of government. And they really want to stop that. Of course, they blame terrorism as a reason for it. Mm -hmm. So they want to shut it down. What this sounds like, if I'm hearing it, is that they've come up with something even more devious than shutting down the Internet. They're talking about corrupting it mm -hmm. by actually using it as a force multiplier. When you think you're reading an independent source that had built up a clientele, you know, and people trust them, mm -hmm. suddenly they're paying off these people to use the Internet against people rather mm -hmm. than for them. Yep. That they used it as an independent source, and now they have done it even more insidious than shutting it down. I have now, did I hear that right? Is you, that basically you, did, you heard that exactly right, and that goes into my next story. I know that we go back and forth, but I think this is really You're important. You're cutting me off from the important story I uh, I'll let you go, but I think this is okay. really important. Uh, this is from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Australia, obviously. 90% of web surveillance documents censored to stop premature, unnecessary debate. What? Yep. The federal government has censored approximately 90% of a secret document outlining its controversial plans to snoop on Australians' web surfing uh, and other activities obtained under the Freedom of Information Act laws out of fear the document could cause, quote-unquote, premature, unnecessary debate. The government has consulted... <laughs> That's something you don't want a free society, a lot of debate going on. Yeah. The government has been consulting with the Internet industry over the proposal, which would require ISPs to store certain Internet activities of all Australians, regardless of whether they have been suspected of wrongdoing for law enforcement agencies to access. All parties to the consultations have been sworn to secrecy. Industry sources have claimed that the controversial regime could go as far as collecting the individual web browsing history of every Australian Internet user, a claim denied by the spokesman for Attorney General Robert McClelland. The exact details of the web browsing data the government wants ISPs to collect are contained in the document released to this website under FOI. The document was handed out to the industry during a secret briefing it held with ISPs in March, but the censored document released... Uh, but from the censored document released, it is impossible to know how far the government is planning to take the policy. The government is hiding the plans from the public, and it appears to want to move quickly on industry, con con uh, on industry consultation, uh, asking for participants to respond within only one month after it held the briefings. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, here, here's what that leads me to believe. First of all, um, what's sad about this is that there could be really good, honest bloggers out there mm -hmm. who just so happen to agree with the government on something. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some times when I have, you know, sure, rare occasion, too. but there is. Now you can never trust them on whether they're really saying something in their own mind or whether mm -hmm. they've been bought to say it. I think it's I think it's a good thing to always tend to uh, look at things as sort of and just sort of assume that they're a disinformation source and be skeptical until you can corroborate 
some of the things they've said. Right. You know. Except from us, they should never debate anything we say. Yeah. Right? Pretty much, if it comes out of my mouth or your mouth, you can trust it's fact. us. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Mm. Um, you know, you you go check the facts, things that we mentioned to you, and do your best. Of course, ultimately, the one secret weapon we have as Christians is that we can pray and ask mm. the Holy Spirit. When, when we're not real sure about all this information, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you mm-hmm. and to keep you from deception. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are obviously in a world that is in so much deception that we we're, don't, you and I can't even imagine we're the, swimming left, the, in the, 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 the depths of deception and what we're confronted with. But, you know, if, if you hear people that are saying things counter to the government line, more and more every day, I mean, there's kooks out there, but more and more every day I'm mm-hmm. starting to see the odds are much higher that they're probably genuine mm-hmm. uh, than, than the party line because mm-hmm. basically they, they, they've said they're, they're going to use this as a, as a corrupting thing. It used to be said for our enemies we would do that to them. Mm-hmm. Now the enemy is the American public. If you want to see who an enemy is, go look at the DHS report of, I think it's February 2009, mm-hmm. uh, about right-wing extremists. Mm-hmm. And just about every one of our Futurians will find their description in that yeah. book of... Enemies of the state. So when they say they're doing this to enemies, so you know who enemy yeah, is. It's, it's Dr. Future Tom Bionic and the listening audience. Look in the mirror, and yep. you'll find out who the enemy of the state is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've you've got the officials. You know, you've got police, military officials, mm-hmm. and stuff that are doing this, and then there's the rest of mm-hmm. us, the civilians, as you call them. No, um, that's what the police call them. I call them citizens. That are that are potential, you yeah. know, potential trouble for for mm-hmm. the man. Yeah. So well, sorry, I, I I did the I did the two for there, but I thought no, those two I'm really felt. Now my really my stories look sort of wimpy compared to in the scope compared to what what you're talking about. I, the other thing, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't care if these are Christian ministries or whatever else you follow, do your best to find out to follow the money. Mm-hmm. If they're saying something that has some kind of societal perspective or could really impact things, mm-hmm. you go find out who's bankrolling them. Uh, you, you go go in, in on this on the news yeah. things on TV. There is a constant stream of these center for the policy of blah 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 center yeah. the whatever you know. You know what's fascinating? Think tanks. They're all paid by somebody. Sure. And they're paid to give the answer to the people who pay the checks, mm-hmm. left and right. I know. And 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 I'll I'll give you a I'll give you a, a up one level from that. Uh, the the youngest Rothschild, I think it's Morgan, maybe it's David. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's a younger guy. He's maybe yeah. my age, and uh, he champions a lot of these environmental movements. Yeah. Uh, I just saw a picture of him this morning of him doing a skull and well not skull and bolts the Freemason handshake. Yeah. With the whole the whole bent finger and stuff. Huh. As uh, they built this they built this sailing vessel out of plastic, called the Plastica huh. or Plastiques. Huh. And here he is giving like a Mason handshake to this guy on the pier. Interesting. Like, wow. Interesting. Mm. You know, the guy who I really worry about the most that fits the bill from our description from great wealth, powerful interest controlling, um, Johnny the Longshoreman. Yeah. Iron I was gonna, thought you were going to say me, but... Well, no. I'd say Johnny the Longshoreman probably fits yeah. great wealth. powerful, has endeared himself to powerful and wealthy, uh-huh. you know, sell out. Yeah. You know, he'll just take the opinion. Can you imagine the email I'm going to get from him on yeah. that? Yeah. He's going to laugh about that, though. I, yeah. He'll laugh about it. Tell you what y'all can do if if y'all wonder about that, go listen to Iron Show. Mm-hmm. Ironshow.com. Iron Show. Yeah. You think we're intense. I, I see Iron, Iron Show sort of being like the in uh, and John from Johnny being like is it Tom Bombadil? I don't know the name of the guy in the in the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, where he had like this little 
house in the forest. He was this real unassuming kind of guy, but he was really very powerful. And they said for all of the powers in Middle Earth, that would be the last that would ever fall to like Sauron, you know, in the dark uh-huh. forest was this little guy in his house. And I think Iron Show would be the last one that would. <laughs> I, th- right. I think he could withstand the seven years of yeah, he's like, tribulation. <laughs> tribulation. Yeah, I'd put my money on Longshoreman Johnny. Okay, I've got one here that just shows my fixation and uh, mm-hmm. the stories that I've been telling here. Um, Porter goes deeper into Dominionism. Okay, this is from uh, Right Wing Watch. Uh, let's see. Last week we noted that since losing her radio show due to her growing involvement with Dominion theology, Janet Porter appears to have decided to double down by further aligning herself with those who advocate this theology. Her initial reaction upon losing her show was to lash out at those who accused her of embracing Dominionism, uh, though without much success as her own words and history undermined her defense, as we mentioned on the mm-hmm. recent show with uh, yeah, Joe Sparrow. Where did this come from? This is from Right Wing Watch. Okay. Okay. But months have passed since then, and Porter is now seemingly aware that any future she hopes to have in religious right activism is going to involve a full embrace of both Dominionism and its most ardent supporters, which helps explain this. Uh, I don't have visuals to show our listeners, but it says, mm-hmm. just take one guess what the focus of this Worldview Super Conference was. So I'm going to recite the uh, announcement for this conference. Mm-hmm. Sovereignty and Dominion, Biblical Blueprints for Victory. The, now this is from the, the convention she's associated with now. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1.28 that God created us to multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion of his creation for his glory. When Jesus came to earth, he gave his disciples the great commission and told them to make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that he had commanded. These two mandates form the basis of why the church exists on this planet. Every square inch of this world belongs to King Jesus. It is our privilege to serve him by exercising servanthood, dominion in every area of life. Uh, and this was uh, not a... Now, you, you notice they mentioned sharing the gospel, which is which is an undeniable thing we should be doing as evangelicals. Mm-hmm. But they also but mentioned... So suddenly at the end, every area of life we should mm-hmm. take dominion. This was not a conference that just happened to have a few dominionist speakers, but was rather organized by full-blown Christian reconstructionists like Gary DeMar of American Vision and Gary North. DeMar's mission is to see, quote, an America that recognizes the sovereignty of God over all of life, where Christians apply a biblical worldview to every facet of society, in control of it. Mm-hmm. Um, added that. Uh, this future well, America. That's what he meant. Yeah. That's what he meant, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, from his other writings. Mm-hmm. This future Amer- America will again uh, be, again, a, quote, city on a hill, uh, as taken Reagan's reference drawing all nations to the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching them to subdue the earth for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, while North is the son-in-law of Christian Reconstructionist guru R.J. Rushduni and likewise an open Reconstructionist himself. Uh, Now, here's another quote of theirs. While many Christians believe that biblical law is a guide to morality and public ethics, when interpreted in faith, Reconstructionism is unique in advocating that civil law should be derived from and limited by biblical law. 
For example, they support the recriminalization of acts of abortion and homosexuality, but also oppose con- confiscatory taxation, conscription, and most aspects of the welfare state. Now, a lot of those things are good, but the fact is that their justification for it is that they want to make the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom here, the Gentile nation, mm-hmm. one and the same. Yeah, that's okay? that's really the heart of the mission of a lot of the more Gnostic things that we've we've reviewed here. You know, that's right. really the mission of the Gnostic side of things. You know, right. not. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, while Porter's radio program has gone off the air, her WorldNet Daily column seems to have been abandoned. Uh, which is, I was curious about that because. You know, we, when we mentioned this to Joseph Farah a couple of weeks ago, he didn't really say anything about her. He just said she's a friend of mine, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to comment on anything my authors write. But mm-hmm. when I've looked on her work, the last article I've seen in World Net Daily from her was June 15th. Mm-hmm. So I've not seen any notice. She's discontinued, but I haven't seen her updated. And I don't know whether that's on their behalf or hers. Um, and it says, even her Faith to Action website is rarely updated. But that doesn't mean Porter's disappeared. She's just abandoned her tradi- traditional religious right activism in favor of linking up with those openly seeking the creation of a theocracy. Hmm. I don't mean to pick on her, but I think this is going to be a story worthy of watching, particularly because now we have our mainstream Christian leaders in America essentially saying the same stuff. Buying into this. Yeah. And she's one who's been very, very influential in those circles, and she's just gone hard over in that in that direction. And... Are you hearing a lot of your mainstream Christian radio? Are you hearing them talking about dominionism any? Zero, but I don't really listen to mainstream Christian radio that much. Listeners, if you hear them talk about it a lot, email us and yeah. let us know. That'd be a good when test. I've heard it, when I've heard it, I haven't heard anything. Mm-hmm. But and I also want to challenge our listeners in a couple of things. Some of the topics we talk about on here, um, when you listen to some of these shows, like uh, some of the shows like during the day on Salem Communications on. Christian uh, talk radio or things like this, whatever the shows mm-hmm. are, call in. When they have call in, call in and ask them some of the things that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Like some of the questions we asked Joseph Ferris, these other people, get their responses. Ask them what they think about dominionism, some of the quotes that we've said uh, on our show. Go to the Heroscope websites, Christian operated. Mm-hmm. It takes information verbatim that they're said. <clears throat> Read it and get comments from these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're likely to idea. get a quiet microphone for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I called in once on, on one of those programs in the middle of the day. I really wish I would have heard that. Yeah, and they were talking about uh, basically stringing up those uh, people in Michigan, you know, for being militia members. And I really don't know anything about those folks. Mm-hmm. But I just made the point that there was a history of the FBI going into groups like that and setting them up well, for taking them over. And they were so offended by that that somebody would point that out. Well, it's interesting you mention that because... Uh, like there were nine people in that in that thing, and only eight ended up getting arrested. There, uh, uh, along uh, along with that, I guess the guy who finally was pushing big to uh, uh, you know make explosives and stuff. I read in one particular website. I haven't verified this, so this could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the guy who didn't get arrested was also the guy who was really making the push for explosives and uh, to build you know. Uh, uh, all sorts of machine guns and all that stuff, and really to be sort of more militarized. Hmm. So it certainly has the hallmarks of a of a uh, plant. But what we hear in the news is what they want us to hear in the news about sure. these things. In other words, the story that's already been groomed and sent out in the press releases. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is what we know about those kind of things. Sure. Well, the easy thing to do is just take a ball bat and smack your TV with it a few times. <laughs> I'm glad you said TV set. Yeah. Well, I yeah. thought they were going to come get you for a minute, but yeah. you know that no, might no, be no. against the law too, hitting the TV set. Uh, anything's possible. You know, pulling the pulling the tags off a mattress. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people thrown away. Yeah. Uh, you got a story for us? Sure. Automated debt collection lawsuits in golf courts. Uh, as millions of Americans have fallen behind on paying their bills, debt collection law firms have been clogging courtrooms with lawsuits seeking repayment. Uh, few have been as prolific as Cohen and Slamowitz, a Woodbury, New York firm that has specialized in debt collection for nearly two decades. The firm has been filing roughly 80,000 lawsuits a year. Uh, with just 14 lawyers on staff, that works out to more than 5,700 cases per lawyer. Just how is that possible? The answer to that question is the heart of a growing debate is at the heart of a growing debate over the increasing use of the nation's legal system to collect bad debts i.e. debtors' prisons. Uh, like many other firms, Cohen and Slamowitz relies on computer software. Slamowitz? Slamowitz. That sounds like it should be like law enforcement corrections yeah. related. J.J. Slamowitz. You don't straighten up, it's Slamowitz for you. <laughs> oh, I thought like like good cop, bad cop kind of a thing. That's like Officer the Slammer. Yeah, I'm Starsky sorry. And, Starsky and Hutch or yeah, something. Proceed. Yeah. Like many other firms, Cohen and Slamowitz relies on computer software to help prepare its cases. Collection law firms are unable to handle such law volumes of cases because, of, because computer software automates much of their work. Typically, a debt buyer sends a law firm an electronic database that contains various data about consumers, including name, home address, the outstanding balance, the date of default, and whether the interest is still accruing on the account. Once the collection is obtained by a law firm, collections like Collection Master from a company called Commercial Legal Software can quote-unquote, take a file and run it through the entire legal system automatically, including sending out collections letters, summons, and lawsuits, uh, says Nicholas D. Uh, Arcaro, vice president for sales and marketing at the company. Huh. Now, that's just sick. Huh. You're, you're fighting a computer now. You know, mm -hmm. you wind up on the bad list. Yeah. What does it take to get off? Do you think it automatically gives you your uh, plea? Like, you know, you check these boxes, well, we're going to just plead well, guilty in the on ongoing, automatically. In the ongoing saga of uh, uh, Tom Bionic's, you know, run-ins with the law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, I got a ticket coming back from Texas, you know, and I was legitimately speeding, so I sent in the money. This is from the Ancient of Days Conference. Ancient of Days Conference, which, yeah. which we reviewed here. Yeah. I sent in the money. I pled no contest, and I sent in the money. I got a thing back saying that I still owed $20 in court fees, court security fees. What a ripoff. Yeah. Isn't that insane? What a ripoff. Well, you know, you're, you're paying for the uh, union pay, or the, the you know, everything yeah. in that county. Mm -hmm. you're, you're taking care of it right yeah, there. Yeah, I know. And that was because you how fast you were going? It was some terrible speed you were going. Well, it was, it was uh, the ticket said 10% over the posted limit. Do you believe it was 10% over the posted limit? Yeah, it probably was faster, to be honest. Oh, I thought you said you were going like 72 and a 70 or something. No, that's a different thing. That's the Arkansas. <laughs> oh, that's the Arkansas. That's, wow. Well, that's, that's why. You were on a trail of. Terror. I know. 
It's like two Christian guys coming back from an alien conference. Robert Hatt had a bad influence on you, evidently. Yeah. Well, the first time I was speeding, the second time when I got stopped by the Arkansas yeah. State Police, yeah. and they you know, basically threatened to shoot me in the face and all that stuff, right, right. Was, was a different speeding time. I've taken my life in my hands just co-hosting this show with you. Yeah. I don't I'm, know I'm innocent, people. I t- can I get 30 seconds here on this? Sure. Sorry that took so long. Uh, I haven't mentioned David Barton this week. It looks like we know we can now add David Barton and Rick Green of Wall Builders to the list of religious right activists who are opposing the effort by a handful of right-wing leaders to get conservatives to f- support immigration reform. Okay, they're on the other side. Um, and they are taking a hardline stance uh, as evidence for the fact that the guest on today's episode of Wall Builders Live was William Gein of Americans for Legal, Legal Immigration, PAC. And uh, Barton started off by saying it was God who set the boundaries of all nations. <laughs> so any violation of national borders is in reality a violation against God. So we should have a one-world government. Well, you know, it's interesting. He picked 70 nations back in the time of Genesis. Mm-hmm. So I guess America was playing the exact boundaries. I mean, God knew we were going to make the Gadsden purchase, you know, well, get that I mean, last little bit. I would I would posit that God probably did know we were going to make the Gadsden well, sure purchase. sure he did, but I mean... It's, it wasn't... Yeah. We, I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Okay? It, oh, it seems insane. It seems... Somebody else weird is Merv, who can yeah. tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. I'm sorry. I get myself in deep trouble with these things. No, it's okay. Thank our listeners. I, I used to think that it was us getting like more weird, yeah. but it's not. It's the stories. Yeah, we're the mainstream ones. That's, yeah. the, that's the strange part. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, come back for another show on Future Quake next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. quake.